Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! podcast you're about to hear is an account of a film that was viewed by a group of three middle-aged yet exceptionally beautiful individuals, in particular Hope Madden and her two cohorts, Troy and Roger. It is all the more entertaining that both, both men are very, very gay. But had they been very, very straight, listeners could expect a significantly less fabulous and all-around less entertaining experience than what they would experience on this day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon recording became our next episode. The recordings of that day were to lead to the release of one of the most bizarre segments in the annals of American entertainment, Dark Knight of the Podcast presents The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What an intro, Roger. When's your book coming out? What? No. <laughs> oh my god! My book will just be about myself and be called like "Raining Diamonds" or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but our guest today did recently just release a book and film a movie in unison, like at the same time. Very impressive. And I'm gonna just jump right into it as I like to do. We are very lucky to have author and filmmaker Hope Madden here with us on Dark Knight the Podcast today. Hello, Hope. Hi, thank you so much for having Yay, me. Oh my welcome. gosh, I've been excited. I've been waiting for it. I've been waiting because there's a few things. A, we got a lot of gay men on this show, but I'm like, we need some estrogen because there's a big female filmmaker movement going on right now. And I want to hear those perspectives. I think, you know, gay men, we love final girls and horror for our own reasons, but the women I know who love horror really connect with the material. And um, I'm, I'm curious, like, what was it? that drew you to the genre and when, like when in your life did you discover your love for horror? Um, pretty young. And I think it's because as a kid, I was afraid of everything. Um, everything, everything, everything. I was afraid of everything. And, um, I think, you know, little kids, they make you read the same books to them again and again and again, they're small children because the more they can predict the story, the more they feel control over a completely uncontrollable world to them because they're so small. And I think that I started doing that when I was young. I would just watch horror films incessantly because I think it made me feel like I could predict the horror of the real world. And of course, the opposite happened. It made the world scarier still. <laughs> I became frightened of things I didn't even know I was afraid of because of you know, fascinating and interesting things that other horror filmmakers are afraid of just introduced me to new stuff to be afraid of. But I think that was when, and when I was like nine or 10, I went to a slumber party um, and watched Motel Hell. And that was, that was, the, that was it for me. After that, that's, that's all I wanted to do was just watch horror films. I love that. That that's the title. It's not like you're like, I watched Halloween. Like you like bust out like a, like more obscure but classic title amongst the fans, and instantly you've got me hooked. I'm like, all right, I love that this is her journey. <laughs> oh yeah, 
Motel hell, those people buried in the fucking garden. Yeah, oh, yeah, those like know. head sacks and that noise that they made. Oh, forget it. Tro- Troy, who's the actress in that that was in another? Nancy yeah. Parsons. She was in uh, Porky's. Yeah. yeah. And Rory Calhoun, like who had been, uh, you know, I guess a like a fifties heartthrob. I don't know. I literally know him from Motel Hell, but he was. Great. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun one. We're gonna have to do that one soon for sure, for sure. But I totally get like why that would be like an allure for you at that age because that title is it's it's bonkers. You know, it's bonkers, yeah. and I I totally see why that would be something that would draw you into the genre. Um, <laughs> as you started to kind of explore it more, who would you say are some of the filmmakers that? you started to like gravitate towards or some of the, I mean, maybe some specific titles that really like really grabbed your attention within the genre. You know, and I think uh, the same with a lot of people of my age, it was um, um, VHS covers, right? It was the, the more lurid the cover in the video store, the more likely I was to rent it or covet it. So when I was young, that was uh, a lot of what I, what I watched. So a lot, a lot of them were terrible, but Um, but a lot of them also were Cronenberg. And I think, you know, I got, when I was a kid into the habit of just sort of assuming I was going to watch something that was dumb and fun. Um, and, and, and then, but cause a lot of Cronenberg covers were very lurid and creepy, but then when you watch those, they're really excellent films. Even something as goofy as, you know, and splattery as scanners, there's something underneath of that that's worthwhile. So I, I very early became a huge David Cronenberg fan as, and I still am. I mean, I think he's, he's just a um, magnificent filmmaker. And then also um, I went through um, like a big, uh, I became a big fan of, of uh, sort of the savage seventies, like those, those films, the early Wes Craven, like, um, uh, uh, you know, um, why can the Hills have eyes? And, um, and then, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. And a lot of those really gritty, very indie, really nasty horror films of the independent American filmmakers of the 1970s became immediately like favorites of mine. I love the titles you're selecting, honestly, like Cronenberg, for sure. Like some of those visuals, like when he really leans into something like grotesque, like you get the full visual of it, <laughs> like like his body horror and everything. Yeah. It's always just like a mind fuck, you know? Um, but also, yeah, like the, the classic American, like the films that establish the groundwork for what we view within the genre today, at least when it comes to uh, regarding American cinema, but definitely also influenced the cinema uh, from other countries for sure. Like you definitely see the popularity of title, like the one we're going to cover today. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, the influence that had around the world and how all films became willing to go there after Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of went there. You know what I mean? Oh, I definitely think so. Especially, I think I think my favorite sort of subgenre um, now as an adult is uh, like the the French extreme films from like the first decade of the 2000s. Uh, and I think that for sure you can see the impact of the 1970s American independent horror, especially Toby Hooper and, and Wes Craven on those movies, on, on, you know, movies like, like, uh, Martyrs and Inside, Shaitan and Trouble Every Day. And the ones that are just, they're just completely unafraid to take you places that you just didn't expect them to go. Inside is one of my favorite, um, of the two thousands so far. I also love Frontiers. I've talked to Roger about Frontiers as well because it has a very heavy, heavy, heavy Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe to it. For sure. So when did you start actually 
crafting cinema. Like I know that I know the title that we're going to talk about uh, in regards to what you've been recently been working on uh, is your first full length obstacle course, correct? Yes. But before that, you'd worked on other shorts and so forth. How long have you been doing that personally? Uh, yeah, I made my first short probably just really, I think just about two and a half years ago. Um, I've been a writer forever. Actually, when I was in the, in the, uh, uh, in the fourth grade, I got into a, a massive amount of trouble for having, uh, I wrote and directed a play to, to be shown during the PTA meeting that year. For some reason, my elementary school did that once the, every PTA meeting, one class put on a skit for the parents to watch. And then when I was in the fourth grade, which happened to fall during the week of Easter, Holy Week, I went to a Catholic school. It was, uh, I got to do it. And I, I made my own version of the movie When a Stranger Calls. Oh <laughs> and nobody paid attention. Like the teacher didn't sit in while we rehearsed it and everything. So no one on earth knew that that's what we were going to show. And I didn't realize it would be weird. It didn't occur to me that people weren't going to enjoy this masterpiece that I was putting on. And I hadn't seen the movie um, because I was really not allowed to watch anything when I was a kid. And so uh, in my, like in the actual movie, very few people die. The children die completely off screen and really nobody else dies until the end of the movie. Not in my version. Everybody dies. The children die. The parents die. The police die. Everybody dies. All these people die in this like three and a half minute skit that we put on during Holy Week at Catholic school during the PTO meeting. And I was in so much trouble. <laughs> and there were like other parents whose kids weren't allowed to play with me for a while. <laughs> it was, but it was the beginning for me. That's really, I think, where creating it started. But after that, I just really wrote it for a long, long time until finally, yeah, about two and a half years ago, we, we made our first short. I have to say that I also went to Catholic school. And I feel like I would have gravitated towards you after that moment. I would have been like, this is my kind of woman. I would have have loved it. I'm just picturing, it feels very like, it feels like something out of like a Tina Fey movie. Like (laughs) the children put on a stage production of What a Stranger. (laughs) Like I just, I could see the potential in that. And I hope that uh, that there is a video of that somewhere. I pray to God. There Uh, isn't. And I wish that there was. (laughs) Now, when you started writing, does, is everything you write for the most part horror as well, or do you like kind of normally tackle a different genre? Um, I have, I mean, over the years I have written uh, non-horror, sh- mainly short stories and uh, a poetry. And poetry has not been horror. It's just been regular run-of-the-mill garden variety stuff. But um, this, And the short stories has have varied over the years, but I think primarily I have written horror. The novel is, is uh, coming-of-age horror. Um, and then for, for the films, it's been exclusively horror, which is just really, it's just really where my, where my brain goes. It's, it's just, which I probably isn't maybe great, but I mean, I, I've been, um, asked to try like, why don't you try such and so? And I thought, you know what? Writing is hard. (laughs) Like, I think, I think editing yourself, like self-censorship is the first downfall of any writer you just you just got to write what comes to you and and not not try to impose a lot of you know censorship on top of that I think so um so I I really mainly do make horror awesome and and when you say the novel you are speaking of uh Roost which is the title that you released this past uh spring correct Mm -hmm. amazing yeah I saw so much 
coverage of that hitting my social media. Um, and it seemed like there were just a lot of people really like celebrating it and, and really celebrating your work. So that had to be an amazing feeling to have like such a, a big response to it. It seemed like. Yeah, I was, yeah, I, I, I was really happy about that. Um, and it, it is kind of funny that to, to have your first book and then make your first feature film in the same year. I just, I really, I'm midlife crisis hard. So welcome. Crisis. <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm not even on that point yet, but I feel it coming, and I'm like, whoo! Like, get ready, buckle up, <laughs> buckle up. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, if you know, if you're going to midlife crisis, at least do it artistically and expressing yourself. Like, hey, if you got a book out of it, and now you're also directing a feature film out of it, like that's taking a midlife crisis and, and turning it into like a positive experience. So, right, it's uh, better than yeah. a sports car, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. No, for sure. But and like, uh, so I have to say, like, I really like got wind of you and and what you're working on when I started seeing promotion for Obstacle Corps, which had already been like cast at that point and everything. But I know a lot of people were really wanting to be involved. And, and I was very lucky to, to get involved with it on a smaller uh, scale and come out for a few days and interact with you. And I just thought it was like a wonderful experience. Like you have an army of people working under you who respect you so much. <laughs> and like, and like you like really like control the set in such like a confident way. Like it was such a positive experience, not a single negative thing to be said from anybody people were just like cheering you on and like you had to have something positive going with that and that really has to be a testament to your overall work ethic and your your quality of work uh because i have to say like it was just really a very impressive first introduction to you thank you so much oh my god thank you so much and i uh i can't and i can't tell you how much i appreciate that you came in you came all the way in for for that for that part because it's a funny thing it isn't a big part but it's one of my absolute favorite moments in the film the the two that you're in like when I wrote it I love that guy so much and he represents what our characters should have been doing the whole time it's like he's he's the like this guy that's who you want to be and and I was just so I just feel like we were so fortunate that you were willing to take that part and and um and it's you know it, it's not a giant part and you, you're used to much larger roles and I so appreciate that you came and worked with us. Oh no, listen, I, I no, <laughs> like trust me. I just like to be on a film set creating. I don't, I have no expectations. I I just was really happy to kind of get the chance to see something occurring a within Ohio on the scale. B in Columbus because I, I, you know, I lived in Columbus for a few years. I was there in my twenties, and whew, you know, talk about talk about midlife crisis hitting a little early. But but um, I had a great time. I love Columbus, and I love that there's a really strong film scene developing there. I see a lot of t talent coming out of Columbus, so I was just kind of honored to be able to work on your set. I mean, and I would come back and do it again in a heartbeat on any scale, even if it was just being a PA because. It was a great experience, and I honestly, I, I cherish getting to see um, female filmmakers starting to finally, I think, get the voice that they've deserved for so long within the, the film industry. I feel like within the last few years, there's been a big shift. I'm, you're seeing a lot of these strong female filmmakers coming out of the woodworks and creating amazing art, and um, I think on the indie level, it's still maybe like a couple steps behind. So whenever I get a chance to support a female filmmaker, I think it's very important because this is something that should be be far more attainable and happening on a far wider scale, you know? Thank you. I think also we were really, um, it was it was interesting how many other women really 
wanted to get a chance to work on a film that was led by women and my DP, Brooklyn Ewing, who is um, just amazing, amazing filmmaker um, herself. And so uh, I was so happy, 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 happy that she got to uh, be, that she agreed to be our DP and she made an amazing movie. And then our, uh, our whole camera crew was female and, um, and our action coordinator, we had two and one was female. They were, they're a married couple. We had so many women in the, you know, leadership positions across this film. It was very exciting. Yeah. Oh, I noticed the, when I was on set, I noticed like the hierarchy of the structure was predominantly female. And I was like, you know, they're doing it. Like this is a women led production. So I, I tip my hat to you and I am happy to be able to assist in any way just to see that come to fruition more often. Uh, and I, thank you very much for including me. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes. And so it sounds like Obstacle Corps is starting to already receive some positive traction and buzz already when it like the from the sounds of it like film festivals are already starting to pick up on it and everything what is your vision what is your game plan for obstacle corps moving forward um we do hope to get it into a bunch of festivals it's not to be honest it's not completely done yet where the color is finished as of yesterday and uh we are about a week away from having final sound so we're almost done uh so we have um We've shared the um, work in progress print with a number of festivals and, and have gotten lucky there already. So we our our goal is to do a festival circuit and look for, you know, distribution. Um, likely, I mean, I know that we'll have some theatrical release because of a relationship that we have with Gateway Film Center. And uh, so that will be fun to get a chance to see it you know, for like a regular run on a big screen. But other than that, we'll probably we're looking for distribution, probably to streaming services. Yeah, you're, and you guys are going to get it. I mean, the title alone, it's so freaking catchy. The, and like the promo material and everything, like I'm I'm really excited to see what comes from this project for you, for everyone involved. What a lovely cast and crew. Uh, and I can't wait to see what's next up for you. Like, do you have kind of a game plan for your next project? Do you know where you want to go from here? I don't. Um, it was uh, it was pretty grueling actually making this one and we we did it at such a sprint that i think what i might do next is um write again and then i don't know kick around what our next cinematic project might be right now because one of the great things about writing is you just do it all by yourself (laughs) (laughs) alone without paying hiring people for to do all kinds of effort for you yeah yeah i feel it doesn't cost any money (laughs) You're yeah. never outside. Because the other thing about this movie, which I, I mean, I love this movie and I love the way it's turning out about Obstacle Corps, but we shot um, 12 days outside the whole time. We were we were really, aside from two, like one quick montage and one very short scene, we were outside in the elements the whole time. And I'm not, uh, I'm not like an outdoorsy human in, in, in any way. I mean, I catch, I catch fire in the sun. Um, and I'm terrified of the woods and I, uh, I didn't even know about all the things to be terrified by like ticks. We had a massive tick problem. I know we went through so much tick spray and not like your run of the mill bug spray. We went to, you know, we went to the camping section of Lowe's and bought tick spray um, and as, yeah, it was just nasty. The, the whole, it was, I mean, the, the camaraderie and the, the working with the, the people was great. We have an incredible cast that I'm really happy about. Our crew was amazing. It was just the experience. It was so grueling that I, I, I need to take a little bit of a break. Yeah. I completely, completely understand and respect that. Uh, Troy does as well. We've all been there before. 
<laughs> oh yeah, I filmed three feature films in three years. Oh god. So yeah, I know. So I, I've been on a little hiatus here for the last couple of years yeah, just because I. You must just be still tired. No, I am. It's so t- people don't understand how time consuming it is. Literally, for like four years of my life was devoted to pre production, all everything that goes into making a film. So yeah, I, I need I needed a break. I needed a break. So yeah, we it's it's we've all been there. It's necessary to charge your battery because if you do it too much of it for too long of a period, you start to resent it. And you like, you never want to resent your passion because then and you can lose your passion for it. So um, yeah, I respect that completely. And I can't wait to see what uh, you do decide to step into next, you know, after this, maybe after obstacle corpse is out and released, if you do decide to tackle a, a sophomore effort, um, I'm really excited to see where you go with that. I know there's going to be a huge amount of people that are going to support you and want to work with you after this last experience. So um, it's nice. I mean, it's got to be nice knowing that, that when you are ready to do something next, uh, you have a great team behind you. Yeah, no, you're right. The support for this has been really overwhelming and just the loveliest experience. Yeah, deserved, very deserved, I have to say. And uh, we are about to step into our review segment of the episode, but I do want to give you a quick moment to just uh, shout out your social media handles now. I always like to give one now and then one at the end. So if people forget, uh, but go ahead, just let everyone know like where they can follow you on social media, where they can follow Obstacle Corpse and uh, what to look out for. Sure. Thank you. Um, on Instagram and Facebook, it's Obstacle Corpse Film. And on Twitter, it's Obstacle Corpse X. Um, and we actually, I also have a, a, a podcast that's about horror movies. If somebody wants to follow that and that is on, uh, on Twitter at fright club pod. Love it. Yes. I, I, I even said to Troy, I was like, and she runs a podcast. So we know that she'll be able to keep up because <laughs> sometimes I'm like always paranoid. I'm like, are they going to like have the natural chemistry on a microphone? But I was like, this one, I have to worry about it. And it's good to know. Cause we're tackling a big title today. Yes. Big one. An important one, I have to say. This is definitely, I would say, one of my top five favorite movies, genre movies of all. Um, and when you gave us your list of titles, it was difficult because you honestly had several titles that I've been kind of chomping at the bit to cover. But Troy and I were recently at the Houston Horror Film Festival. We both had uh, the joy of, of working on the Scream Queen panel. And uh, one of the actresses featured there was Pam herself. Wow. So that was really kind of awesome to like have that that moment to meet Terry and um you know just, Oh yes. You know, I've seen this scene over and over and over of her and that damn meat hook, but to meet her in person was really awesome and she was so pleasant and she told us so many stories about her experience and and that gave me like a really great connection with the material. So when you mentioned that I was like, "Ooh, you know what? I'm still feeling fresh off of that." Uh, I'd really <laughs> love to like kind of get into the meat, meat and bones literally with the chainsaw about this movie. So I have to say, like, you know, as filmmaker to filmmaker hope, I've always been a huge fan of Toby Hooper's overall style. Like, you know, his um, fluidity, he's got like a very like flowy kind of silky style at times where he uses a lot of sliders, dollies, pushing in. And then other times he can be really sporadic, but he's very smart about how he uses it. Would you say that this title specifically um, is, inspired you like you know stepping into your first feature film did you take inspiration from this title you know i did one of the things i love about this movie in particular is that it does 
especially in the context of when it came out, it does unexpected things. You know, it, it's it's all in the daylight, whereas, you know, prior to 1974, you expected the spooky things to happen at night. There's essentially no score. And again, prior to the time this film came out, music would lead you toward, oh, something scary is going to happen. And being in broad daylight, you know, you're used to like, oh, there's something in the shadows. It's like he didn't, he didn't give, he didn't let you predict when to prepare to be afraid. And so you were just afraid the whole time, which was really nutty when it happened. And the other thing also, I think, is the the Franklin character, Paul Partain. You know, up until this movie, if there was a character in a horror film with disabilities, you expected that to be this noble character who survived. And man, if that was what you thought going into this movie, nope. Um, but one of the things I love about about that performance is that he's so unlikable, um, which was unusual, certainly for the time, but he's right, right? He, I'd have been in a bad mood too. They'd just leave him in the brambles. Nobody helps him out. I'd have been super bitter and whiny too. Um, and I just, I mean, I loved all of that about the way that he did this. And I think that we did it in a little bit of a different way in our film. Um, the movie, a lot of people die. Like I kill. I think 31 people in Obstacle Corpse. <laughs> <It's> mainly, <laughs> I love it. And it mainly happens in the woods. It's almost all in the woods where the, this, this Obstacle Corpse race is run through the woods. Um, but I wanted very much not to have the film look like one of those spooky, dark blues, you know, in the woods where you know something terrible has happened. I wanted a look more like Midsummer, something like where it was just beautiful and sunshiny and bright and like a secret garden, like nothing could go wrong here. Um, and, uh, and so I think it, 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 that to me was a little bit like what he did, where he just completely upended your expectations um, his is not actually, I actually think that Texas Chainsaw Massacre does have some very funny moments, but, um, ours is a comedy outright. So it's, it's quite different in most ways, other than that it's, it's like his movie all in the broad daylight and almost all outdoors. Yeah, I love what you said about Midsummer because that was one of the titles that we were thinking about. And I love Midsummer, and I love the look of Midsummer. I think the look of, Mid- of Midsummer is what makes it as effective as it is. Um, because it is so beautiful and bright and colorful. So I love that about your film as well. And, and one thing to be said about this film, I have to say in general about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is I think it's pretty undeniable that while it's gritty, while at times it is dark, uh, it is oftentimes beautiful. Like it is a beautifully shot independent film. Yeah, I totally agree. There's one uh, scene in our film that is uh, that is really... <laughs> Brooklyn Ewing is a genius in many ways and in one isn't convincing me to do something because she goes here's your Texas Chainsaw Massacre moment I'm like do it what are we doing let's do it <laughs> you gotta have it you gotta have it I mean this this film has so many shots so many sequences that are so uh, vis- visceral and visually uh, stimulating the the way he shoots this film and and benefits greatly upon the blue skies of it all the 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 big wide shots there's so many moments that start from a wide and doing like a zoom in to kind of build suspense in the moment uh it's just really well crafted really really well crafted i love how this movie was shot but i also love how this movie sounds for sure oh my god yes yeah i gotta say watching it this time for this particular you know review i did notice you know how 
great the the cinematography is and what i really notice is the camera in this film is constantly moving it's constantly in motion and you know when we had jamie blanks on our podcast talking about urban legend that's the one thing he talked about you know they're called motion pictures for a reason the camera should constantly be moving it just makes the 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 film more visually engaging and that is the case with this one very much there is some really really great cinematography in this film yeah i totally agree with that and that's funny i think that um in x film that just came out uh last year ty west's x which is clearly in many ways just an, an homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I think that one of the things that he clearly understood that a lot of people have missed is what a gorgeous movie this is. And it's because it's so disturbing and the disturbing elements, the moments, especially also the sound design, when that when that door slams, that's one of the best moments of sound design, design in all of horror, when that, you know, that metal door slams. But, um, but I think, you know, it's so horrific that people miss how gorgeous it is yeah absolutely that shot there's i mean and everyone knows the shot but that key shot of of terry of pam walking up you know she's getting up off of the um off this like the, the swing chair and and the camera moving underneath the swing following her and literally watching the house grow around her like the house becomes such an uh, increasingly ominous present just in the shot alone as as she becomes so small as she walks up to the porch it's just it's it's a shot that will forever be singed into my brain as a as just a great moment in horror um but also the brutality in this film when you watch it back you know this movie is bloody but it's not really gory i mean you see like the remains of corpses and things but for the most part the characters when you see the characters killed off um, there's a lot of force behind it. Uh, it's very realistic in the way that it's played, but you don't even really see any penetration of flesh, really, um, aside from the cutting on the hand within the van sequence. This film is shockingly li- like low on gore, yet still insanely effective. I mean, this movie is terrifying. <laughs> I do think that's one of the reasons why it is so effective in that sort of, you know, that sort of Jaws kind of a way is that, you know, it, you feel like you see more than you do. Yeah. And let's take a moment to give some credit to the the set decorators of this film, I think, because one of the most effective aspects of this movie is the inside of that house where they go with those fucking like skeletal artistic structures. Like who the fuck was, whose mind went there to create that, you know? And where can I get that chair? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's terrifying. It's elaborate. It looks, and you know, the, people mention this film all the time as almost having a documentary feel to it. And that is very apparent. And I think the film sets itself up very uh, wisely with, with that perspective because of the opening voiceover um, that we get with none other than John Laroquette of all, all right. people <laughs> narrating it, <laughs> basically repeating in a sense what Roger, how Roger started this particular podcast episode out with about the, the tragic fate that befell um, a group of youngsters uh, on a van trip through the deserted uh, roads of Texas. And particularly Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. Um, and it basically went down in the annals of America, American history as one of the most vicious unsolved crimes that will forever be known as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I really do love then kind of the, the scenes that follow with the camera flashing 
on the various body parts of these corpses that have been d- dug up. And then I, not that I want to dwell on the remake, but I think that's something, remember the, the trailer for the, the trailer for the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably the best horror trailer ever to be released. And they really capitalized on the same aspect of the opening of the original film with the flashes of the camera light. And I think that's what makes it so, so effective because of the noise that, and then you're just mm-hmm. seeing these disturbing images that you can't fully realize what they are, but you know they're not good. And then the film transitions into that shot of this like corpse monument that is sitting on top of a tombstone that's been wired together. And the camera lingers on it for quite a bit. And I can imagine in 1974 that this was really unsettling to audiences. Oh, I can't even imagine. You know, Troy, remember when... On one of our Patreons a couple months ago, we talked about the top three most um, or top three best opening credit sequences of a horror movie. And this was one of my choices. And I fucking stand by it because I can't think of of another horror film that establishes the tone so perfectly for what's to come. It's it's meaty and gross and moist and and just like the the visuals the the camera flashes are sporadic and the overlay of the symbols crashing that that score that really just defines this movie i mean they give you a, a delicious taste of it here in the credits alone bleeding into that opening shot which i do find to this day extremely unsettling that corpse just perched up there with his little legs kicking out with his knees bent out you know like it's just a really horrifying shot and um it perfectly establishes what's to come and i do think it's it's very effective in setting in the audience's mind because it is such a gruesome disturbing shot that oh my gosh this film is going to be gruesome and disturbing and i think that that is one of the the aspects that makes the film seem a lot more gorier and visceral than than truly what it is because you're right there's very little gore in this film you know but i think that opening shot really establishes in the audience's mind oh my god this is going to be super disturbing and it's kind of a subconscious thing right yeah i do think you're right i think the subconscious thing is important as the film progresses because the audience realizes when they meet this family that these are the people responsible for what happened early on. And so like, I think it it has an effect on the audience where we just think, Oh my God, it's them. Like you're so disturbed by what you see early on that the last thing you want to do is run into whoever did that. And, you know, and that's where this is taking you without spelling it out. I think there's a lot, uh, a lot about like the, like the name Leatherface, the fact that they call him Leatherface, but they don't ever like point out because he's going to take the face off of this victim and then wear it later on his own. I mean, I think there are actually a lot of people who who miss that up until the sequels, right, where it's where it's actually done on camera for you. I mean, I think that that Toby Hooper really it's the film is so much more subtle than I think people realize. Oh, it's it's intricate. It's so well thought out. That's one of the things that stood out to me this viewing because it had been a hot minute since I had watched, sat down and just watched the movie, and I just, I guess I was like kind of almost taken aback by what a like well played out story it tells. There's so many tiny little details that hint to moments from before or or you know allude to something to come. Um, but like like little moments like when you have Franklin finding like the the skeletal art in the uh, abandoned family home. You know, like sensing that somebody's been in that property doing things with like these skeletal rema- remains, which is very much 
along the lines of what they had experienced in the cemetery before, you know, it all kind of ties together and it, it sets up for the audience, this feeling of growing, swelling dread. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think also there's a new, there's news, a news broadcast that is playing over the opening credits that is, that is definitely feeding the audience a lot of important material about the grave robberies that have been going on and whatnot. And then you do get that very, now I think it's another kind of an iconic shot from the film and it's just so simple. It's just that dead armadillo sitting in the middle of the road. Um, And then in the distance, you just see the green van approaching and it pulls over kind of in front of the armadillo. And we are introduced then to kind of our, our four focal or our five focal characters, right? Including Franklin, who yes, is wheelchair bound who has to be wheeled out so he can take a piss. People have so many issues with Franklin, and I get it, but I have to say right now, rewatching this movie, this poor fucker is put through the mill. <laughs> oh, my God. Roger, I am right there with you. I have always like just had in my back of my mind, just because you hear it so often when people talk about annoying horror characters, Franklin is by far the most mentioned, right? You see it all the time. However, this watching, maybe it's just because I'm older and grumpier now, and I'm like, oh. But he is literally like, I don't blame this guy. He gets like thrown out of his wheelchair down a hill. You <laughs> he know, he's, by a he's man. sliced in the arm. <laughs> Yeah, he's sliced in the arm by some fucking nutcase hitchhiker they picked up. They leave him in the fucking Texas heat when they're going and exploring. Like, this poor guy is put through the fucking ringer. I would be pissed, too. I would be cranky. I don't find... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. I don't find him as, as annoying as I think people try to make him out to be. There are far more annoying horror characters. I think people that think that Franklin is a a super annoying character. Yes, he definitely has some grating qualities, but watch the film and see what this poor wheelchair bound guy has put through and ask yourself, would you be happy go lucky after this? Yeah, I love Franklin. I do. I love him. Um, And, and you know, if, if his, like soliloquy is accurate, we're like, come on, Franklin, it's their fault. They dragged him. And then, and then it's like they committed to taking him with them and then they didn't even do what was necessary. If you're going to bring somebody with you to some place that has no wheelchair ramps, right? I mean, you have you can't just leave him in the bushes. No, you you, you know, why bring him with you? Yeah, I I'm all kinds of sympathy for Frank. I do have to say though overall for the the cast in in general, you know, there's there's only 5 of them first of all. So you know who everyone is, but very well played across the board like they all feel very much like you know young 20-somethings kind of careless not bad people just having fun um i I don't really have anyone in this movie that i don't like i think the performances are are quite good and at times so natural it only adds to that kind of documentary feel but yeah they definitely feel like real people and I just like the the dynamic that all of the characters share together, even like the conflicts and and, and Franklin being kind of as, as annoying as he is to the rest of the, the group, their reactions to him and his reactions back just all seem very, very, very natural. Yeah, I like one of the things I like about the movie is that um, it doesn't ask you to hate any of the characters and wait for them to get picked off. Uh, which I think probably in 1974 wasn't as much of a trope as it became later as the slasher became like so, you know, so popular, but that all of the characters are, you know, at turns likable and not likable, just like all human beings, especially on a really, really hot Texas drive in an unair conditioned van. (laughs) Um, But I love, and I'm always like this. I love the villains. 
I love the villains in this movie so much. I love Edwin Neal, the hitchhiker. I love that character. In fact, I, to be honest with you, I like that character better than Leatherface, though I love Leatherface. And I love Jim Saito. I think he was also great in this movie. So, um, and, and they're my favorite characters, those three. And then one of the things I like the best about the dynamic that's developed among those three is that at the, 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 the dinner scene is really, it's about them and how much they get on each other's nerves and what their sort of family hierarchy is. And so we're, you know, we are a sort of poor Sally who's crashing this party going, Oh my God, I'm like in the middle of this horrible dinner with this awful family. And it's, I just, I love, I love the, the dynamic that this film sets up in that scene. Yeah. These villains are not necessarily the most organized individuals. It's not like it's not like they're working together like with a game plan. They're just offing people out of like desperation because like, you know, they stumble into their house, Leatherface makes some mistakes and kills people. So now they're just being kind of assholes to Sally, knowing they're inevitably gonna have to kill her off too. But overall it's not like they really have like um like a method to their mayhem. They're bumbling. Like they're they're really like <laughs> incompetent at times. But I love that because in ways that makes them more unpredictable as well. Like, you know, the hitchhiker isn't next necessarily the, the, the scariest villain in the, the overall hierarchy of, of villains that have existed within the genre, but his, his complete like lack of predictability, the fact that he truly genuinely is just so like cuckoo bananas. Like he is just like this firecracker and he has no rhyme or reason to what he does. Like when he cuts his hands or when he's doing things to taunt Sally, um, that makes him, that alone makes him very believably scary. He's played in a way that very much seems like uh, somebody who is not completely within their own right mind would operate in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also love Jim Sida, the old man, the the cook, you're just a cook because you he he seems to see himself as the benevolent but unable to do anything to stop those rowdy kids but really when he has her in his truck he's the, he's punching her you know he's he's enjoying all of so he's i find that character to be so sinister um and but but partly because he doesn't seem to see himself as that but you know turn he's he's more of a coward than the others are but he's so when, when Sally is begging him, you could make them stop. And he's like, oh, you know, he, he, he talks as though he's a good guy, but his hands are tied. And really, he's just horrible. Definitely an enabler, right? Mm-hmm. I do like also that there is a little bit of, I mean, it, it, I, maybe it could have been elaborated on a little bit more, but there is kind of some foreshadowing about what's going to happen in the film, or to, especially to the characters with Pam reading out of, what is it? It's like an astrology book. And she's talking about this right. is the point where Saturn is in retrograde. And that means that there is definitely going to be some uh, some danger or some huge obstacle that they're going to face later on in the day. And they also... I do like the scene where they stop at the cemetery because they are basically making this trek, it seems, to uh, visit this old abandoned house that their grandparents used to live in. So along the way, they've heard the news about the the corpses being dug up from the cemetery. So they do stop at the cemetery so Sally can go out and check to make sure that her grandfather's grave has not been disturbed. Uh, and you get a few colorful characters here, including the drunk guy <laughs> that's like <laughs> passed out on the cemetery I love him. F- ground, just like saying random shit. It's like, okay. 
He's just like bubbling up, spitting up frothy <laughs> beer and just sitting in a tire. <laughs> just like, like, who let this man here? Like, who's allowing him to remain outside of this very busy happening cemetery? This cemetery is the place to be right now. Um, but yeah, even the little like, like kind of like rednecky characters in the pickup trucks. Like, I like all of these little characters. I almost wish I got to see a little bit more of the town that exists around here. Because even like the smallest day player extras pop in this film everyone's good and they all have such personality i really think that's played into the fact that toby hooper is really just very good at kind of executing some of these sequences and planting these little moments that let some of these tiny characters shine you know yeah i totally agree it reminds me that the early part of this film reminds me of deliverance and how authentic the whole horror wound up feeling because you're invited into this community that you're like, it, it, wow, really? But you believe it. You're like, these people are unusual, but this seems so lived in and authentic. And I think that that makes what could otherwise seem very over the top in terms of the horror that's about to follow. But you're like, but I, I already believe I'm here. I already believe this place where I am. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I think a lot of that is because in both films, it feels somewhat unscripted. They just seem like, goofy people that you run into. Um, and, and, and I think for this movie, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it leads, it, it lends itself to that documentary feel that you mentioned, Troy, that, that the film, especially early on really develops. I also have to appreciate that the film, and I've lived, I lived in Texas for about 13 years uh, and the film definitely feels like, uh, you know, country isolated rural Texas for sure. And it's because partly because it was filmed in Texas, but they really strive to make the film feel very atmospheric in terms of you are in the middle of nowhere in the sweltering Texas heat. Not all of the Texas Chainsaw films feel like Texas, sure. right? This one does. And you have to really appreciate that they filmed it in Texas. It was right outside Austin. You can still visit the gas station. I actually have done that. That, you know, is the prominent gas station in the in the film so i just got to mention that because like the the latest texas chainsaw massacre that came out on netflix i mean come on there's mountains in the fucking <laughs> um so I, I appreciate that this one and, and it's a couple of the sequels do kind of nail that texas vibe and they have it going forward and, and definitely heaps leaps and bounds you know, so th they get back in the van and they're traveling. And again, some more foreshadowing happens because they smell this horrible smell. And you get this whole conversation about the slaughterhouse that is in this area. And Franklin happens to know quite a bit about how the cattle were slaughtered. And he really gets a kick out of telling the others about how these poor animals were were, were slaughtered. First, they were done with sledgehammers, but, but that was replaced because oftentimes it took multiple hits with the sledgehammer to kill the cattle again foreshadowing and then instead of the the sledgehammers now they use these guns that shoot a metal rod into the heads of the cattle to kill them instantly um, and there's just like long drawn out conversation about slaughterhouses and the girls are not too pleased to be having to hear about this until they do see the hitchhiker which is probably from the moment they pick up the hitchhiker and everything that happens in the van, this is probably, you know, obviously one of the more iconic scenes, more memorable scenes in, in horror history. Picking up this hitchhiker 
is is one of the single worst decisions made by a group of individuals in a horror movie to date. Like, I mean, seeing this man in like his full getup, his presentation, like he just like he from the very first frame you see him, even from that beautiful wide shot of the van pulling over, that is very ominous. Um, with him like flipping his bag all around, like jumping up and down, like I'm sorry. What about this moment made them say, you know what? Let's let's give him a shot. You know, like let's let's give him a chance. This man is the last person you would ever want to allow into your van, but they do it. And I mean it does push the story forward. But like it is it, it is troublesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I I know I wouldn't have picked this man up. But again, we have to keep in mind this was the 70s. Hitchhiking was a very prominent way for people to travel. That's why there were so many successful serial killers in the 70s, correct? Um, but also they, they do try to play it off a little bit and make it a little bit more reasonable. And I do appreciate that because there's the one single line that Kirk says that he's like, oh, we, we should pick him up because he'll die of, of heat exhaustion if we don't, or he'll swelter in the heat. So they try to make it sound like it's a very benevolent thing they're doing. They're getting him out of the heat. But I'm like, okay, your air, your van doesn't have fucking air conditioning. So how much more cool is it? <laughs> You know, but I mean, I do appreciate that they try to at least throw that in there to make the group seem like they are really trying to just do the right thing, you know, and not leave this poor mangled looking man out on the side of the right. road in a hundred degree. And they are hippies. They are hippies. Um, but I agree with you. The first thing I think of is um, they, they're already bothered by the smell from the rendering. And I'm like, this guy, you're never going to get the smell of this guy out of your van. This is really... After you drop him off, this is going to stay with you. I remember even as a kid thinking like, oh my God, he must smell so oh, terrible. Oh my God. Everything about him is just, in my mind, problematic from day, like from the from the very first frame you see him. But you know what? I do have to say it is also one of the best scenes in the film. I mean, oh, for sure. the way the scene progresses, and you're right, Troy, like they do seem like they're trying just to, to, they're just trying to do something nice. I don't think they really have a full grasp on just exactly what they're letting into their vehicle until they do. And then- once they realize just how far out this guy is, then they quickly are like, oh, you know, man, like we should, you know, we might have to just let you out here because we got to keep going. Like you can tell they're trying to backpedal real fast. Yeah. And it, I like this, how the scene progresses, like from the minute he gets in the van and starts actually talking to them, you know that he is not right in the head. And I, I love this performance as well. I mean, yeah, it, it just captures kind of the, the quirky craziness that is very unsettling. And, you know, he's, he's just rambling about like head cheese and how they make head cheese and that his cousin makes the best head cheese out there. And then like, he sees like Franklin playing with the knife and he takes Franklin's knife and proceeds to like slice his hand open in front of everyone. Um, and it just gets progressively worse from there. I mean, he takes a camera and takes a picture of Franklin and then demands that they pay him $2 for it before they decide, you know what, we are going to just pull over and let you go about your merry way. And as they do, he takes his razor blade, his straight razor that he also has that he's kept in his like shoe, pulls it out and proceeds to slice poor wheel bound Franklin's arm open with this fucking razor blade before getting out of the van. Get Franklin a goddamn break. This poor guy. Oh, my God. You're right. No wonder. 
No wonder he's so frustrated. So many horrible things have already happened to him. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming he would need stitches. That was a straight razor. Those things are sharp as hell. And they just like wrap it up with a little band-aid and they're cooked. Be on your way. Don't tell me that razor isn't giving him tetanus. Like that <laughs> that is a gross fucking exactly. razor in a boot. Like this man is not bathed. He's just been hanging out at a fucking uh slaughterhouse. Like that blade is covered in shit. Nasty, absolutely. But um I, I really think that everything that transpires here is really well played in the sense that so much of it ties into what we've already kind of experienced. The 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 camera especially is a definite tie into the opening footage of the corpses being photographed. The the talking, like the obsession and talking about like the head cheese and all of the jowls and eyes and everything that go into it. Like this guy obviously has a strange fascination with meat. So like, so like that's that's gonna play a factor into things. And just like his like his self mutilation, everything to do with the blade, it all plays directly into what we've kind of already like learned about uh, the story and also where it's going. It's very well executed. Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. Oh, by far. Yeah, I definitely agree. They then they stop at the infamous gas station um, to get gas, but unfortunately, it's a gas station that does not have gas. Uh, he does talk to, they do talk to the gas station owner who comes into play later on in the film as well. Franklin is curious if he knows where this old house is, which is their grandparents' house that they're looking for. And, and when they're outside the, the car, they do notice that the hitchhiker had wiped blood in some weird pattern on the back of the van, which becomes kind of a, a obsession with franklin he sees this and he is constantly like questioning do you think the guy's gonna follow us do you think the guy's gonna follow us it's an kind of a weird i don't know is this supposed to be did you guys think that is it supposed to be like some sign that the the hitchhiker put on there or is it just like a random he just wanted to be a dick and white blood on their van because it does look like it's some sort of symbol and this upon this viewing i was like is it supposed to be some like sign or some something I don't know. I think to the hitchhiker, it has some kind of a meaning. I don't think it's really elaborated on, but I definitely think there is kind of a, uh, you can see there's like a curve to it at the top and on the bottom, like he was trying to spell something out and they focus on it enough that it definitely feels like it has some kind of impact overall, you know? Yeah. Cause there's this moment where I think Kurt is getting, getting ready to wipe it off and Franklin is looking at it and tells him, don't, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And then like starts staring at it really, really intently. And he's like, Sally, do you think that guy's following us? I'm wondering if he feels like it's some sort of like marker to be able to locate them. Yeah. It's, it's definitely an interesting thing to focus on for the film. I love this scene overall. Uh, for a lot of reasons. First of all, with that big piece of sausage hanging out of Franklin's mouth like it's a cigar. Um, <laughs> but I love, I mean, the the, the smooth flowetry of the scene. There's a lot of like sliders, dolly shots in this. Uh, it has some really unique just kind of motion to it for being such a simple sequence. Um, and it just has a lot of like care. Um, lots of things cutting away to the little moments of the girls at the soda machine that's not working. Uh, and, and then that man, my favorite character in the movie, that man that comes over and washes the window, who you never hear from him again. But my question is, is if he's working at this gas station, obviously the family that we come to learn about knows of him. And how has this man avoided like being killed and eaten or whatever? <laughs> like, like, how is he just <laughs> coexisting with them? Like, I want to know more of his story. Sadly, this is the only scene with him. It, to me, it was another moment that reminds me of Deliverance. 
it's another moment where the, you know, the, the characters feel to me like a, a, a maybe intentional throwback to deliverance. Yeah. I mean, you're getting, yeah, I, I do like the colorful characters that they meet along the way. Uh, it's short lived because I think what I do like about this film also is the action kind of kicks into high gear pretty quickly. You know, there's, there's not a lot of time spent uh, you know, really, really, really getting to know these characters. Once they get to this house, which is the next scene, this abandoned house, they, we do get um, a scene of the four of the able-bodied ones getting into the house and going up upstairs. And just like, like you mentioned earlier, leaving Franklin kind of downstairs in the bushes. And <laughs> they're just exploring this house, which looks really, really creepy. Um, again, it goes back to like set design. Where did they find this location? Because it's like the perfect, perfect abandoned house franklin is just not happy because he has to sit down there and just listen to the the group laugh and have fun while he can't do anything i mean he there's there's no wheelchair ramps there's no like functional sidewalks he's just kind of stuck there (laughs) until he is able to like wheel himself into the structure and Probably one of the scenes that does make this character quite annoying is when he starts like mocking their laughter and then doing raspberries, like exaggerated, long, hard, like (laughs) up at the ceiling to him. And it just goes on. It's like not just one. It's like 10 of them. And it's like, okay, yeah, this is getting quite grating. It is. But I, I mean, I also do feel sad for him in this moment. Like, yes, the raspberries are a bold choice. Uh, but like I just, he has that line was like, come on, Franklin, it's going to be a fun trip. If I had more fun today, I don't think I would be able to handle it. Like, like, you know, that little, and like, you feel like you do feel bad for him because like it's played one of the things that's played really well in the sense of, uh, providing motivation for his to be him to be so frustrated is even when they're like, when they are on the ground, it, the terrain is very difficult for him to navigate like you're talking about like rocky rooted like bumpy stony gravel paths and you know having to get himself through like the door frame and everything of this old dilapidated house and everything is uneven it's very unstable for him and so from that sense i like it's just all the more frustration for him because he's trying to like navigate uh while keeping up and he can never seem to keep up with everyone and that's that is a sad kind of reality for his character because he can hear the joy in their laughter but i do love this moment overall with them too because this is one of those scenes that just feels very real very believable their interactions in the house and everything are, are very just natural oh yeah sally's telling them you know the that this there was a particular bedroom that she used to sleep in when she was a when she would visit her grandparents when she was eight and there's wallpaper and that she was always fascinated with the uh with the zebras on the wallpaper and yeah poor franklin's just down there listening to him laughing and having a gay old time and i do like that he after he's like says what you said roger but oh i if i had much more fun i'd be he, and then he like loses his uh balance on his wheelchair and runs into the wall oh yeah the <laughs> like poor smashes guy. his hand he's like oh damn it and while we're talking about everyone interacting i just want to take a moment to to kind of bring her up because we haven't touched on her yet because it i find it i find it like a unique choice that there's not a ton of focus placed on who ends up being the inevitably being the the final girl sally um, she's kind of just given as much attention as everybody else, but I don't think you're really meant to know who the who the last one standing is going to be. But when Sally is on camera, I feel like there's this very genuine innocence and likability factor that she 
possesses that makes her very endearing. Even when she's frustrated with with her brother, she's still very endearing. And um, I've always felt like, as far as final girls go, I feel like Sally often gets like the shaft, um, especially like when all is said and done, this girl probably goes through the single most intense and all around physically and emotionally demanding experience out of all final girls to date. Like if you look at what this girl goes through this movie, like, holy shit. When shit hits the fan though, Sally is also like one of the most determined survivors we've seen as, as a final girl, a, a female in the genre. She does everything she possibly can within her means to, to survive. And when you first see her within the movie earlier on, I don't think you expect that from her because she is so meek and demure and just sweet with that squeaky little voice. But God, I mean, this girl can run. <laughs> and jump. I mean, she's jumping out windows, not once, but twice. And you know, Roger, this is why we make the perfect podcast house to speak together because I have that exact same note this time around. I'm like, why do you think, because let's, let's also acknowledge Marilyn Burns fantastic, fantastic performance. I mean, she is devoted to this role, unlike I've ever, I mean, this is the most devotion to a role I've probably ever seen. I mean, she is determined to do what she can to make this all very believable. And I don't think the last 20 minutes of the film would be nearly as successful if it wasn't for her performance. I mean, she genuinely looks terrified uh, throughout the last portion of this film. And I, I had that note. And I'm like, why do you think then that she is not really mentioned as being one of the great final girls, when you hear about, like, of course, Laurie Strode, um, Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street, who I would take Sally Hardesty over Nancy any day of the week, because that's really honestly not one of my favorite final girls. Um, but, you know, you just never hear Sally Hardesty mentioned. And you're right, Roger, the fact that it is one of the most grueling uh, physical performances of any final girl we've probably ever seen. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I truthfully, honestly, one of the reasons that one of the reasons that I felt like this was the right title to cover for us, honestly, with having you hope is because I feel like when it comes to like the final girls, you know, Sally is one of the first. She's one of the earliest. I think people with this film, with this specific title, a lot of times they say it's it's kind of like um, through like a male gaze, like the women are treated like meat, literally, and that, you know, to a certain extent sexualized. But when I, when I watched back through this film, you know, there's no, there's no nudity in this movie. I think everybody gets pretty fucked up. <laughs> if you're dying in this movie, you're dying brutally, but I really can't think of a stronger woman within the genre, um, at least this early on within the, at that, by that time. Um, I think Sally, is extremely strong and, like you said, Troy, dedicated and determined to survive. I'm curious for you as a woman, how do you see Sally? And is this a character that you find to be a strong interpretation of a female? I do. I love this character. And I think one of the reasons why uh, she doesn't maybe stand out to people who are, you know, I don't know, categorizing final girls is that um, it's not... She, it's not so tidy an arc. I think it's a much more natural arc. You know, usually you start off with someone, you know that that's who it's going to be because they are meek or they are smart or they are the virgin or they are whatever. And then you watch as they develop these skills throughout and at the end, they're strong and powerful. Sally feels like just 
she randomly is the one that is left. And so she, I think she feel more like, feels to a viewer more like the viewer, regardless of whether it's a woman or a man watching the show, right? It's not the fact that she's female has, doesn't really play a role into why she's the last one there. Um, and it doesn't really play a role into how she survives anything. And I think one of the other reasons is that she doesn't come off at the end as being stronger for having survived. She comes off the way I think all of us think we would in the end as nuts. Just, is she laughing? Is she crying? She's just, she's bloody. She looks like shit as she should. And she's, you know, she may never recover from this. And I think, um, I think that that's one of the strengths of the film, but I also think that might be one of the reasons that for, for a lot of people, she doesn't make for, a typical or maybe satisfying final girl, because in the end you don't feel like, and now she's the hero. You're like, and now she needs a lot of therapy. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And you're, and you're right. In terms of her being the hero, I guess, you know, unlike like a Laurie Strode or a Sydney Prescott or, you know, name all of the, the really popular final girls, Sally doesn't really do anything to get the best of the villains. You know, she gets away mainly by chance. You know, mm-hmm. and it's not even her that injures Leatherface. It's that semi truck driver. So I guess looking at it from from that perspective, the people that want to see their final girls rise up at the end and really get the best of the killer, like you know, stabbing him with a knitting needle and stabbing him in the eye with a, a wire hanger or chopping Mrs. Vory's head off with a machete, she doesn't really do anything that inflicts any sort of pain or damage on the the villains. So it's like, okay, yeah. Did she really fight back? Well, she was really determined to live, but there was never a moment where she turns the table on the the villains and, you know, grabs the hammer and starts beating the grandpa. No, she just runs out of the fucking house and is saved. Like I said, by coincidence, there just happens to be a semi in a truck that drives by. So looking at there, yeah, I mean, I guess I can totally see why she might not be as cherished as a final girl as some of these other ones that we, we discuss all the time. For me, I think that's one of the one of the strengths of the film because a, a lot of times when you do have that character who you know turns the tables, there are like nine times throughout the story where you're like, you know, you could escape right now, which is what we would do, right? We wouldn't look for an opportunity to kill. I mean, I wouldn't. I would look for an opportunity to get the fuck out. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons that that Sally, to me, is is in a lot of ways a better character because. She does what you, what I hopefully would do in that situation. You, you survive it and then you just get out. And I'm, you know, I would be screaming and covered with blood. And I do feel bad for the truck driver because you never really know what happens to him <laughs> driving the Black Maria. But yeah, I wish we would have really got a proper sequel that really let us know kind of what Sally's ultimate fate was. And I'm not talking about how they fucking mishandled her character in the new Netflix one. Don't even get me started there. But I'm not about a proper sequel where we find out really what kind of happened to Sally. Did she go insane? What what happened to her? And maybe that's another reason why she's not really revered as much as the other ones as final girl because she just has this single film you know think of like laurie strode how many fucking halloween movies has she been in so people are obviously going to form an attachment to the character but i really really wish if i had any wish for the for the texas chainsaw massacre franchise i really wish they would have given us a sequel that kind of let us know what ever became of, of sally hardesty yeah man you know i'll say i'll say this like 
I didn't hate that that newest entry, but I definitely didn't feel like Sally Hardesty was done right. I mean, in part because you know Marilyn Burns, rest in peace. We we lost a good one in that in Marilyn Burns, but you know I feel like they felt like they brought her back because they felt like the need to, but it certainly didn't do her character any justice. I I would have loved to have seen more from this character done right, done properly. Um, so I do think it, it's kind of a kind of a disappointment that we never got to see her. Uh, take on that title again. But what we get from her, like you said, Troy, is, is probably one of the single best uh, acting performances from within the horror genre, especially that, like, talking that last 15, 20 minutes. That breakdown at that table is physically exhausting. And, and we'll get more into it. But God, I just, I really love this character it is. a lot. So after, yeah, well, after Franklin runs into the wall and hurts his hand, he's kind of wheeling himself around and. Kirk and Pam come downstairs and ask him about the the watering hole that was mentioned earlier on in the film as being on the property of this house because they want to go swim. So he kind of tells them where it's at and they head out. They're going to go swimming. And, and as they're leaving, Franklin does notice what you, that uh, like, what is it? It's like a bone, a bag of bones or something on the floor of the house. Is it a, is it a dead animal? It's something. But then he happens to look up and sees like, like there's a chandelier hanging above him that's made out of bones. Yeah, this little moment was very creepy because we already know a few things. We as the viewers are starting to tie things together. It's definitely hinting at signs of what's to come. Um, and I like that they didn't go much bigger than this at this point. It's this small little moment and you don't really revisit it, but you're starting to put pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah, so now we get to spend some time with Pam and Kirk, who I really, really like these two characters together. Um, again, they seem natural. Uh, Kirk is handsome as hell. You know, Pam is wearing her iconic little red Daisy Duke shorts with that open back blouse, and she's looking damn good in that. I mean, come on. That's going to be my Halloween costume this year, I think. Oh, my gosh. And I'll be the hook. I'll be the meat hook. <laughs> I'll chase you around. <laughs> But they get to the watery hole or where it was supposed to be and it's dried up. So they can't go swimming, but they do see a house in the distance and they hear a generator and and Kirk with his, you know, sensible self, he's like, hey, we should go explore this house and see if they'll sell us some gas. I can give them money or I'll give I'll leave them my guitar and then on the way back, we'll stop and get my guitar and I can give them a little bit more money uh, because remember the, the gas station they stopped at had no gas. So they are running low on, on gas. So they go and check this house out. And this is when we get a, a kind of a full view of this property, which becomes almost like you mentioned, Roger, almost a character itself in the film. And, you know, on the outward look of the house, there's nothing that really intimidating or creepy about it. It just looks like your typical, you know, Texas farmhouse. This location is is honestly probably one of the the creepiest freaking properties again from within the genre that i can think of it i don't even know what it is about it but it did a lot of things that other films have tried to replicate like the whole moment where they come upon all the the cars under that tarp you know there's like there's like 10 or 12 cars like we how many times have we seen that that same shtick you know kind of happen um and and it just it sets this this sense of um looming threat that they're not even picking up on, but just the way they film across this property, you as the viewer just get this sense of dread. There's something coming and, and you can't put your finger on it. I do love though, the usage of that audio of that generator as they get up really close to it. And it's just, it's all consuming. And I also really love 
these two actors here again very natural i do want to take a moment to acknowledge kirk is is so likably natural on camera i'm shocked that we didn't see a ton more from him because he just has such a really warm believable presence the interactions between the two of them i buy them as a couple like when he finds that tooth and he puts it he's like i've got something for you and he puts it in her hand like you know you know that's what guys do to girls right hope like just gross gross disgusting things and she's like get the fuck out of here i want to leave like you know like she i love that moment <laughs> yeah she go. they go yeah he finds a, a, a random tooth lying on the porch when they go to knock on the, the the door of the house of course nobody answers yeah she she gets mad and storms off and goes and sits on the the swing that's out in the yard in front of the house he keeps knocking until the door creaks open and i Again, you talk about sound design, Roger, and setting the stage for suspense, tension, ominous scenes. I love the I love this when he's on the porch and the door opens and all you can hear in coming from inside the house is what sounds like pigs squealing. And it's but it's very subtle. You know, and he decides to go in and he inches himself towards the 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 back hallway where there is a, a door that's open and i and again it's very iconic it's the red wallpaper with all of these different like um skulls and, and animal skulls hanging on it so that's all you see and he kind of runs into the, the the entryway of the hallway and this comes out of fucking nowhere it's leatherface there's no musical stinger we've talked about that there's nothing it's just leatherface appears bashes him in the head with a hammer you get the very visceral shot of his leg starting to twitch violently before Leatherface bashes him again, pulls him in and slams that fucking metal door shut. And the audience is just left. I think I can't imagine seeing this in 1974 jaws on the floor. So much is left to your imagination. Once that door shuts. I mean, this is just a masterful, masterful scene. It is. It is one of the greatest. Um, it is one of the greatest sort of introductions to a villain in all of movie history. It's such a terrifying movie. And I love that you brought up the twitching legs because that's, it, for me, the, it's, I mean, it's the slam of that door, the sound of that door, the finality of that, but I, it's the twitching legs that just pushes it over the top. I, I love every second of this scene, everything about the way he shot it down that hallway, the sound design. And I love that they waited this long to introduce you to essentially the, you know, the, the main antagonist of the film. I think what's really on display here for me is Toby Hooper's ability to to like time out and uh, perfectly like edit a sequence so it's given enough time to build some dread and suspense. We saw this, I think, uh, of when we did a review um, of Life Force Troy, when we talked about like the whole sequence of the astronauts like floating into that cavern and floating through all like the different uh rooms and everything and you know he he regardless of the title he has moments in films where he lets things breathe before the horror hits and it's those moments where you know you as the viewer you you're waiting for it to happen but the characters themselves like kirk does not know he's not even aware what he's getting into and he's standing there in that doorway with his sexy fuzzy little chest showing and everything and just popping his head in it's not until he like stumbles and trips that he comes face to face with leatherface but the way it's edited you just get barely a glimpse of leatherface other than the, the shot from a distance close up you really don't see much it's just a second of it so you still don't really know exactly you as the viewer don't know 
exactly what you just witnessed. You just know it's brutal as all hell. And you're right. When those, when the body drops and the legs start just spasming, like that is how a body that's dying out in my mind would respond. It feels so visceral, so brutal without showing much more than blood. And I think it, it, it really is just a testament to Toby Hooper's ability to perfectly handle and craft a, an excellent horror sequence. And it carries over into this next scene with Pam as well. I mean, this whole segment from, from the second that uh, Kirk enters the house until P- Pam is dispatched on the meat hook is just, I mean, some of the best uh, in horror history. And, and you know, it, it just, it, it is not hard to understand why this is such a landmark film that has been copied probably more than any other film, perhaps other than Halloween, right? Or Black Christmas, because I think Halloween copied Black Christmas, but that's my little rampage right there. <laughs> Pam is on the swing and she realizes Kurt is is not coming out in a timely manner. So she gets up to go look for him. And this is the, the, the iconic shot that you're talking about, Roger, where the camera kind of swoops under the, the swing and we've very low to the ground and we follow her walking towards the house as the house is just getting bigger and bigger and she's getting smaller and smaller before she gets into the house and is looking around when she happens to trip and fall into the bone filled living room. The most terrifying room I have ever seen in my life ever. This scene is is probably my favorite moment in the movie. And it really, I can tell you what makes it just nerve wracking to me is yes, the visuals of it are disgusting, but that fucking chicken that won't shut up. It's it's that goddamn chicken. (laughs) And it's in a, it's in a bird cage, which is so unnerving. Like why would you put a chicken in a bird cage? Oh, it's so unnerving. Well, and, and her, again, the acting here, her response, like you can literally see the nausea coming up in her face. She is just, phenomenal like the fear i buy it and again i think it's because toby hooper really lets it linger on this moment you're seeing these close-up shots of her eyes taking everything in you the viewer you again feel like the character you had mentioned this before hope you very much the way they film this you feel like you're right there with her because it's so cerebral it's just all of these like strange pelvis bones and animal jaws and hands and you don't know where they fucking came from there's feathers everywhere it just doesn't make any fucking sense but it's terrifying um and i do want to point out up to this point there's been a lot of focus on it now she's on the floor and she's kind of bent over you see this open back top she has on and it is a very strategic decision to put her in a like an open back like halter because that last shot on her uh, on her rear walking up you know walking up to the the porch all you see is those red shorts and that open back and what's about to come is another moment where you don't see any penetration of skin you don't see anything but you've been seeing that that bare naked back for the last 5 minutes and that's all you know is that she has nothing on no, there's nothing to even go between her skin and what is inevitably going to be a hook it's it's Makes your skin crawl, in my opinion. Yeah, she vomits, which is a very uh, appropriate reaction considering that fucking elaborate, what it like that elaborate bench that's made out of like skulls and like femurs. I mean, it's a nice bench. <laughs> it's just like whoever, yeah, whoever set designed this should have fucking won an Oscar, in my opinion. But it, because it's just so intricate, every, all of these little like furniture pieces that are made out of 
body parts and bones and we see like skin faces acting as like lampshades that's so creepy. yeah and just all kinds of stuff and it's very you know ed geenish obviously we have to mention ed geen was the major inspiration for this particular film and other films but like it's just so the attention to detail uh so she gets she pukes she gets up and runs out of the living room and is in the hallway when all of a sudden leatherface just comes grunting out of the 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 back hallway and you know again how many iconic scenes can there be in one movie but here's another one that's timed out perfectly because she darts out running and she actually gets out of the screen door onto the porch unfortunately not fast enough because we get the scene of leatherface grabbing her coming out of the 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 screen door grabbing her and just violently pulling her back in the houses and he's hulking i mean this is gunner hansen big man and she's just we met her and roger met her she's like four foot nine this is a tiny woman (laughs) and yeah and he's like grabbing her and she's kicking and flailing again her performance pure you can feel the sheer terror uh, through her screams and her just frantically kicking and flailing until he, yeah, unfortunately takes her in that back kitchen room. And I love that, you know, as, as the camera enters the room, the first thing that is just looming in the front of the frame is that fucking meat hook. Um, the, the, the brutality in which he grabs her is kind of unlike anything I, else I think I've seen. I don't think I've seen another movie uh, that's felt that's felt so um, just brutally true to life like exactly how um, how i imagine something like this would actually go down i mean she is thrashing kicking her legs open but she is she's tiny this woman is very very wee and you can see it because he's holding her with plenty of ease um and it just it really is um very uncomfortable to to watch but it, it 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 makes for a horrifying view uh viewing and I am curious, Hope, you know, this is a scene that if any scene is ever pointed out as being like problematic, this is the one that's like very much compared to like, you know, some scenarios where it's almost like, um, I don't want to say fetishy, but like rape-like. The fact that he just is yanks her right up and carries her over and everything. And, and for again, for you as a woman, I'm just curious with this title, is this something that you've ever found, like, does it push the envelope? Does it go too far? Or do you think it does just what it needs to do to be an effective scene? I think that there's I think that there's a worrisome artistic tendency to I don't think there's anything unnatural about this. So I feel like doing it differently not only would shortchange this because it's a it's a it's a brilliantly constructed scene, set of scenes, but but also it, it tiptoes around something that wouldn't be tiptoed around given this subject matter. So I don't think that it's filmed in a way that feels fetishistic, not to me. I think you're right. I think a lot of times it's her outfit is the first part that I think upsets people. But I, I totally agree, Roger, with what you're saying. It's it's specifically because it feels so vulnerable. It feels so vulnerable. Um and uh and I and I don't I don't think I mean, the fact that she she does what she can to fight back. She, you know, she's not in any way sort of a willing victim. I mean, not that you would be. This is not going to be a good way to go. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I definitely can see, especially one of the things that I find so moving is the way she grabs for that hook, which again, to me, is just what you would do. And that's what makes it so hopeless and awful and affecting. And I can see where that also comes across to some people as being, Fetishistic, I suppose, but and I think as you said earlier, also Roger, they all are meat. They all literally are meat. 
So I, you know, I, I know that it's, it's the outfit that bothers people. And I think it's the outfit that makes this one feel sexist to people. You know, I think, first of all, that's the way a lot of people dressed in the seventies. Like they really did. And I, and I, I don't know. That is sweltering heat. These people are like, everyone's moist and dripping and sweaty. Like what else are you going to wear? But yeah. You know, when you look at the others who have long shirts and long pants on, she's the one who looks wise <laughs> to me in this. I'm like, you know, why are the rest of you have all those clothes on? Um, so anyway, I guess it's a long way of my saying I am, I, I am not bothered as a woman by the scene. I think this is a brilliant scene. And I'm also not, I am somebody who is quick to point out misogyny, especially in horror films, but in films in general. I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't have a, I don't have a high threshold for that. Uh, and, and, and I, I don't, this scene doesn't bother me in that way. Good to hear, because I think, I think while that the outfit is, it is very sexy, I think it was done very much knowingly, uh, knowing how this girl was going to meet her demise. I think it was meant to be more of a hinting towards the brutality than, um, than over-sexualizing the girl. Because, you know, if, if they wanted, they could have... Well, I, I guess they couldn't have gotten her topless. I think they did want a topless scene, and she said no. I, I think I remember her saying that, Troy. But either way, you don't see any. You, see, you don't see nothing. All you see is that back, and I mean that cute little butt and those red shorts. But God, if I looked that good, I'd be wearing those shorts too. Oh, absolutely. But you know what? I you know I think it's interesting. This movie came out so early, and the you know the slasher genre really didn't. I mean, they, they really there really weren't any per se, you know, it wasn't really established by 1974. And I think that these four characters, these five characters, the, the, uh, the good guys, they did become tropes, but they, they, they aren't confined to that in this movie. So in later films in the eighties, her character would have been that the airhead kind of slutty one that, you know, is going to die because she's the hot one who's going to get naked. And you know, she's going to die. I don't think that, that, that existed just like Marilyn Burns' character would eventually be the wholesome one who you know is going to learn how to survive on her own, and then and I also think that the male characters, one of them probably Kirk, would have been a like a jock and a jerk. He'd be an asshole that you were looking forward to seeing die, and I think that probably Jerry would be kind of the nerdy guy who you know you're rooting for. I mean, that's almost there here. I feel like the template was formed here, but. When they did it, when Toby Hooper did it, it was unintentional. And and I think that the film benefits for the fact that they aren't hemmed in by what would eventually become stereotypical characters. I love how you put that. I think that's really, really a smart take on it. Because you're right. Like, all of these tropes, the, the um, like, like cabin in the woods kind of tropes... Uh, that you see depicted intentionally at that point, they didn't even exist yet. These characters are still able to be like likable, very believable. Um, they're not overdone in any way, and I think that plays greatly into their favor and also makes it for when each one of them dies for you to feel a certain level of uh, of uh, kind of sadness because nobody, none of these right. people are bad people. They're all just normal, regular, everyday people dealing with kind of everyday situations. That was, I mean, it, that was something that was really important to me uh, with Obstacle Corpse, that even the bad characters, here's what, I didn't want anybody to be glad when they saw someone die. I wanted everybody to be like, oh, you know, like I wanted there to be something about everybody that you, you know, you liked, you enjoyed, you appreciated so that, because I, I really dislike horror films where you're waiting with glee. I can't wait to see that person die. 
it's so nihilistic and unpleasant to me. And it's, it's, um, and, and I like that very much about this film. And I know that a lot of people, they, they're happy to see Franklin go. I, I wasn't, I really felt badly for Franklin. Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially this time around. Cause I, I came in specifically with the thought in mind of kind of analyzing his character and I came out feeling more sympathetic towards him than I anticipated. Um, but, and I agree that trope of like unlikable characters is, been kind of a trend, you know, from the 90s moving forward of increasingly more and more unlikable characters. And I think that um, it make, that can make for a very sour experience. Troy, we've talked about it before, how having a cast of characters you don't want to root for kind of can, can take away from the overall experience of the film in general. Oh, yeah, I definitely think it can ruin a film. You know, I think that the the most effective thing about a horror film or particularly like a slasher film is when you yeah, you're right, Hope, when you don't want to see the 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 victims be murdered. I mean, think think of some of the uh, the most popular, you know, well-loved slasher films like Halloween, Friday the 13th. All of the characters are likable. You don't have these dickhead characters, these asshole characters that you are like, god damn, I can't wait to see him die. And it did. It became a trope that started in the late nineties and continued even into like the remakes of some of the more beloved horror films. Like the Friday, the 13th remake is chock full of unlikable characters. And that's one of the reasons why it is just uh, almost grating and unwatchable to me because I hate most of the characters in it. At least like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. I think they did a really good job at keeping the characters quite likable. But yeah, this one, yeah, you don't want to see any of these people die. And it's especially in the brutal way that they are. And then poor Pam, not only is she slammed up on the fucking meat hook, then she has to proceed to watch Leatherface cut her boyfriend up with a fucking chainsaw. Right. Yeah. Oh, that that zoom in on her face as she's screaming is fun, ugh, fucking horrifying to me. It's one of my favorite just artistic choices the push in is that, that the chainsaw is swelling over the moment you just hear the sound of it revving as it's cutting through him but they 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 push it on her face instead of showing anything just because you know the, the terror in her face is reflecting what she's experiencing oh i love it i love the fact that they didn't go for full gore in a lot of these moments it does add to the terror um it does add to the overall mystery of exactly what's going on within this family within this household are the sausages actually the fucking people because like you're not seeing it dead on but you know deep down you know those sausages are people um i also really really fucking love that windmill shot where you hear just the hint Mm -hmm. of her screams like if you listen really close you can hear it um and it's it's perfectly added in there just enough of it to know that you can hear her screaming yeah, back at the van now, Franklin is still freaked out about the hitchhiker. Like, he can't let this hitchhiker go. Um, and now he, he he's missing his knife, which he accuses Sally of keeping for some reason. Jerry, in the meantime, is just like, I can't deal with you two arguing. I'm going to go walk to the waterhole and see if I can find um, Pam and Kirk. So... There is a moment with Franklin and Sally where you kind of get a nice little, and it's real quick, but you get a nice little glimpse into the relationship. He's talking to Sally, and the first thing he asks her is if she's mad at him. And she's like, no, I'm not really mad at you. Why, Franklin? And he's like, oh, no, I'm no reason. I'm just asking. Because I think it paints a portrait of Franklin being very sensitive. Like he... He doesn't want to he, he doesn't want to be like a burden to them. And he kind of knows because of his situation, him being wheelchair bound, that he is a burden. And I think it really affects him and, and makes him feel 
Like he is like it makes them feel guilty that they have to worry about him, that they have to take him out to go to the bathroom, that, that Sally's going to have to wheel him around. He Because there are moments coming up where he wants to be independent, like he wants to do it himself, but he just can't. And I think it really weighs heavily on him. And you really get that with this particular scene. And it's like he's asking Sally all these questions, like, do you believe what Pam said about Mercury and retrograde? And she's like, I don't know. I suppose, you know, something has to come of it. And then he's like, do you think that guy is following us? And she's like, I don't know. And then he's like, Sally and she's like what now like snaps at him and you can tell he just like kind of shrinks back and he just looks down and starts twiddling his thumbs he's like nothing like it's like it's just just like a sad character sad character sad more sad than annoying I think it's a really sad scene it's a very sweet sad scene and it's interesting you know um like with years and years between then and now cinematically that they let that that you know the choice was made for our heroine to be kind of a dick in this scene you know really um insensitive in this scene but at the same time if if it was if it was i think it's very realistic she's hot and tired of being here and why can't we just keep going and um and he is you know he is a burden and it's unfortunate and she's just you know she's just sort of giving into it in the way that earlier he was giving into his frustrations but he did it without witnesses he didn't hurt anybody's feelings i i really love this scene i think it's it's really sad yeah and i think we kind of needed to have at least one or two little moments of calm before what is inevitably to come. Uh, but uh, moments to just really um, kind of establish their relationship. Because the overall, they don't have met too many moments directly with each other. You know, like the, the scenes between them are fairly sparse up until towards the end here. But her frustration does feel very authentic, very reasonable. Um, I, I also keep in mind that we're just seeing one day of Franklin. <laughs> like, I mean, this girl, right. this is her fucking brother. <laughs> and like, she's trying, she's like, Franklin, please, please <laughs> like stop. And finally she just snaps as I think any sibling would, you know? So I don't think she's being unreasonably dickish. I mean, yeah, she's being a dick, but we've all gone there before with moments like this. And again, it makes it very easy to relate to her. Right. Especially with siblings. I think you're right. That has a lot to do with that. I also think that it's important in the film before Franklin dies for us to get a scene where we do feel some empathy toward him. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Now we get Jerry at the house and he goes up to the to the door, knocks, doesn't hear anything, but these weird noises again, these weird like squealing pig noises. And he thinks it's Pam and Kirk maybe playing a trick on him. So he goes into the house, uh, goes straight to the back hallway to the red wallpaper entry and goes into the, what is it? The kitchen, the prep room with the, has the meat hook hanging and it's eerily quiet until he hears like a banging or, or a noise coming from the, the freezer that's there. And he opens the freezer and Pam's body is in there. And then there's just this like, I don't know why this shot looks so disturbing to me, but when Pam pops up with her arms flailing, one of the more creepiest shots from the film, I think. Oh, absolutely. Again, I mean, I, the one thing about this film that is kind of, uh, I guess, inspiring, if anything, is that, <laughs> that every single kill has both a quality buildup and a satisfying conclusion. <laughs> like, like every scene that leads up to something, it, it's masterfully done. I don't think there's one moment that really lets down for me in this movie. 
I love as he's approaching the house, you see the, these long shots of the setting sun, just, you know, hitting home that, you know, time is running short. It's about to be nightfall here in a little bit. Um, and again, they spend a, a lot of time with this character approaching the house. He finds Pam's jacket hanging over the railing. So he knows they've been there. You know, there's kind of a natural flow to everything. So when he go, leading to him going inside, thinking that, like you said, it, it's, a, it's a prank that's being played on him. But the way this moment kind of unfolds with the discovery of that body, the fact that they have her completely like just milk white with like the like the circles around her eyes and everything you know she's been bleeding out in there and freezing cold and when he opens the lid and she just like rockets out at him kind of just reaching for him if anything it seems like such a last hope for desperation moment before she inevitably dies here because of, of the trauma she just went through i mean keep in mind she just a hook in her spine so yeah it, it's really really well played and what happens after this i i think is also horrifying in that you know he doesn't have time to react he turns around and boom leatherface again and he unleashes the scream that it's so uncommon from in my opinion that you get to hear men like actually like scream in horror and and he literally just lets out this like blood curdling shrill scream and it, it feels so raw and so real and and i think it's one of the most horrifying aspects of this moment just hearing this man scream a uh, shriek before he gets a hammer to the skull great scene it is a great scene and i think um i think one of the things because there's really no dialogue in this scene at all that it, it first of all i think we need to we haven't yet uh call out the the editors like two editors on this movie because the the it's very their pacing is brave they really understand pacing and you you brought that up already roger but i mean it's just Nothing lingers for too long, and then other shots linger just like longer than you expect them to. But it's enough to just generate this this dread in your gut. Uh, it's so the this movie is so beautifully edited, and I think that also, you know, all of the all three actors they're, they're they don't say anything, and yet they leave such an impression. And I think it is it's again it's that I feel like. It's, it doesn't feel like a movie. Like there, nobody gets to do anything heroic or handsome or flattering. You know, I mean, he just shrieks. Um, and then Leatherface too, is we get we get a little bit more of Leatherface, and he's such an uncommon villain. He's just like a big oaf in somebody else's face. And what is he? You know, the noises that he makes, and he's so just uncoordinated and big uh i just it, there's something so gruesome about these the 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 behavior of all three of the characters in this in this scene and feels so unmovie like i think that it is really alarming in a, in a great way absolutely and and i also love that they give leatherface this moment to react afterwards when you're talking about you know the editing and, and toby hooper's just overall ability to, to, to time these sequences out very well i mean it 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 works in his favor that he lingers on this moment a little bit longer after the kill, because one of the most interesting elements to Leatherface is the fact that he does process murder the way he does. He becomes uh, distraught over it and upset over it and kind of has to sit himself down and like calm himself down. Um, it's a very interesting choice to let it linger on that moment longer, but I think it adds to the character greatly. I agree. Yeah, and 
Yeah, it almost like there's a, there's the moment where he almost is. It's almost like he's feeling regret or remorse. He goes and he's all frantically nervous, and he looks out the window, and then he goes and sits in this chair, and he's making these like re- weird slurping noises, and we just get that lingering close up of his face, and you can see his mouth is and his teeth are all mangled, and you you know I think our imagination in terms of what's under that you know the 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 skin. Wearing someone else's skin is horrific enough, but just seeing what we see f- of his real face, I think we're thinking, okay, what's under there is way more horrifying than what we were actually seeing. And it's just such an interesting uh, choice, I think. We then cut back to the van and Sally and Franklin are the only ones there. And it's now it's pitch black out. So we know time has elapsed. It's pitch black. They're, they're, you can tell they're getting frustrated and desperate. Sally's laying on the horn. Franklin's wanting to just go back to the gas station. And this leads to quite an intense argument between the two of them about the flashlight. Sally wants to take the flashlight from Franklin so that she can go and look for him. And he's like, no, I want to keep it. We need to just go to the gas station. And she's like, no, Franklin, give me the flashlight. And they're like, tug of war over this flashlight and Franklin's like, I'll go with you. And she's like, no, you can't go with me. I can't push you through this. And finally she's like, you know what, Franklin, fuck you. I'll go by myself without the flashlight. So she proceeds to walk into the woods towards the watering hole. And Franklin's like, no, Sally, I'll come with you. And he starts to follow her and he's trying to keep up with her. And he, and, and he can't because I mean, this is some rough terrain. And then it just cuts to obviously He's followed her long enough that she has to like now take him with her because she is pushing him through all of this brush and all of this, what I would imagine would be rocky, bumpy terrain. And she's even like, I can't do this anymore, Franklin. I can't do this. This is too hard. And there's this moment where he hears something. He's like, I hear something. They kind of get to a clearing. And this is the moment that even today, even when I watched this last night, it made me fucking jump and it's when all of a sudden they, they stop for a split second and all of a sudden fucking Leatherface comes out of the pitch black with the chainsaw nobody has time to react before he starts sawing into poor franklin in this wheelchair it is such an intense frightening scene i love this scene so much it's such a it's like it's like it's such a, a great picture of helplessness you know, and, and it starts at the van is she it's dawning on her how helpless the two of them are without the rest of the team. Right. And they they really are because because not only is is uh, is Franklin in, in a wheelchair, but he's a much bigger person than she is. So it's just too much for her. And then when they fight over that um, uh, flashlight is that's where I think you really you really understand that that's that's what Toby Hooper is explaining to you, how profoundly helpless these two people are. It's like the stronger ones were were dispatched early, which is the opposite of how it would normally go. And now we just have these two frail people. This and and, uh, and then you know making terrible decisions because once she is pushing him, then they're at the height of their helplessness because they're just trapped. And 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 then what's the best thing that can happen is when she leaves and takes care of her own self because he's doomed, which is literally what happens. And then, and you're right. And it's really, it is a jump scare, but man, it's a jump scare done right. Oh, it's the, the scenario that we have them in at this point, like 
I, I love how they handled this whole buildup to what is inevitably inevitably his death because that you've you're given just enough time before the actual moment to realize the distress that they're in, and it does feel very much like the kind of frustration I would be feeling if I was in that scenario at a vehicle with no keys. When Franklin realizes that there's no keys, his panic increases. Her desire to take the flashlight is simply because she wants to, you know, figure out what's going on. But he's, like you said, he's too big for her to, to manage. It's not her fault. It's not her fault. But of course, he doesn't want to be alone. So who's really right? Who's really wrong here? I mean, neither of them. They're just desperate to find a solution. And I love that that flashlight represents so much to them. Um, because the shot of him when he's dying, you see the shot of him gripping the flashlight. You know that she's not going to be able to grab it. So she has to take off into the night, into the darkness. That shot of on her face watching her brother chainsawed to death is, I think, the most terrifying shot of that moment. Because you see very little of Franklin. You see him from behind. You see the hand. You see the shot behind Leatherface with the blood kind of spilling out a little bit. But it's her face her reaction here that sells the terror oh absolutely and i and then what proceeds is just i mean talk about visceral edge of your seat is uh, is when he's ch- this prolonged scene of after he chainsaws franklin he starts chasing uh sally through these desolate woods and you just hear the buzzing of the chainsaw and this is the scene that really makes me i've, I've always hated chainsaws you know if you ever go to the those haunted house attractions oh for sure yeah from our, for around halloween time i will literally freak out if i hear a chainsaw because I, I don't think there's anything more terrifying to imagine than being chased through the woods with by some hulking figure with a fucking chainsaw a chainsaw for some reason to me is seems a lot more uh scary and disturbing than like let's say an axe or a machete or a knife it's just that the loud buzzing and just knowing how those chains are going to just rip into flesh it's just so awkward and disturbing to think about so it's so chaotic it's such chaos that sound and the idea of what the chainsaw is going to do i mean there's nothing elegant about it even a machete is more elegant than that yeah and it's it's the sound design in this movie is so glorious it's breathtaking and and i think like I personally feel, and I think a lot of people are going to agree that this is probably one of the top tier chase sequences of all time. It's at the groundwork. Yes. It's the blueprint. And it is honestly her, her performance here is, I mean, God, this, this woman talk about dedication, the scene where her hair is getting stuck in the God, the, the goddamn branches. And she's just screaming like meekly, frail just trying to like rip her hair out as he's coming up behind her with that goddamn chainsaw like it's horrifying it's horrifying and she is working her ass off and i just i realized for the first time that aside from running in bell bottoms this girl's wearing clogs (laughs) like she's running in like sandal clogs like how this poor girl i mean she had to roll her ankle so many fucking times in those fucking clogs but uh, i mean she is just insane in this scene good for her (laughs) and she also has one of the best screams in horror history i think that very guttural scream that sometimes escapes her mouth because you're right her voice and everything is very meek but when she starts screaming in terror it's very guttural and just deep and growling almost it's it's so 
realistic. And uh, talk about chase scenes. I mean, this was 74. Was there a, even a horror movie chase scene before this? Can you think of I can't one? think of one. Like an extended chase scene like this. Did, was there one? Maybe our listeners will know, but I cannot think of one. I think maybe this was the truly the first true chase scene between a villain and a victim. But I mean, it's prolonged. She's running through these woods. Yeah, you're right. She's r- slamming into branches and her hair is getting caught and she's tripping. But finally, she gets to the house and she runs into the house screaming for help, thinking somebody's going to help her. She slams the door shut, goes straight upstairs uh, into the like the attic room. And we notice there's two corpses who are apparently grandmother and grandfather who both look like rotted corpses. And we find out that one of them is still alive somehow, which makes it even more disgust, disgustingly creepy when we get to that particular scene. If I had one bone to pick, I got to say it right now. If I had one thing that I can't really put my finger on how I feel about it, it's it's going to be the character of Grandpa. And it's only because I just, I, I there's things I don't know. <laughs> there's answers I seek about this character that like, I don't feel like the, the movie really ties up at all. Like, is he a living corpse? Like, is he a zombie? Is that why he craves blood? Is there a fantastical element to this? Or is he just a very old man played by a younger man in strange makeup? Does he have a skin disease? What What is the story behind Grandpa? And, and I just wish I knew a little bit more because he's omnipresent throughout aspects of the series. You know, he's in at least three of the movies that we know of. I want to know more. You know, I want to know more. So it's not that I even dislike the character. It's just, it's such a specific look that that full face makeup that they, that he's in. And he's very like yellow. He looks jaundiced. And I just, I don't know what's going on with the guy. Yeah, it's it's never really explained, and it is quite a, a puzzling aspect of the film. Like, yeah, I, I I don't how is this how is this corpse still alive? I don't know, but she does get she does get to see the corpse, and then she runs back, back downstairs. Leatherface, in the meantime, has been chainsawing the door, which he gets scolded for doing later on in the film. But he comes in into the house right as she's coming down the stairs, and I love this. I love this. She does not hesitate. This is like survival factor kicked in times a hundred. She darts right back up the stairs, doesn't even hesitate, runs right through the fucking second story window, just busts through and lands on the ground two stories below. There's not a second of hesitation. And it's very realistic, like you said, because because it's a chainsaw. Like that's, I think, part of the, the reason that anybody's nutty behavior is accepted is that sort of primal panic like, you know, it's not like you're going to dodge it and it's not like it's going to just miss an, uh, you know, miss your organ. It's a, it's going to cut you right in half. Yeah. I, I love that scene. And I love, I, you know, I do, I love her performance. And one of the things I love about this movie is that it doesn't, as I've said before, I mean, nobody pauses to like look better or to, you know, they all look like shit and they would. There's something, I think that's what makes the movie so alarming is how, regardless of how ridiculous the story might be, it feels incredibly authentic while you're watching it. Yes, yes. And I, I even love after this moment when she jumps out the window, like you could see how phased she is, as you would be. <laughs> full on, like, I mean, and do windows really work? Like if I did a full sprint dash at a window, would I go through it or would I just like <laughs> smack on it and fall to the ground? I don't know. <laughs> uh, that wooden frame goes out pretty easy, but she gets the fuck out of there and she hits the ground and you, she's injured. She's cut up. 
And she's limping now too. So on top of everything, on top of all the things she's been dealing with, she now has a leg injury. I like that there's even a moment where like Leatherface like comes and looks out the window and like he like looks down. He's like, holy fuck. It's like that bitch just jumped out the window. And she's off, man. She's off. Yeah, and again, more chasing through the through the dark woods. And there is this moment also where she's just running and she fucking slams her head into a branch <laughs> and falls down and like gets up literally in the nick of time. And, and like Leatherface is right upon her and she's dazed and she gets up and is able to dart past him. And she keeps running and she ultimately makes it to the gas station where she runs inside. The old man is there pulls her in you think he's gonna you know she's she's freaking out she's like you got to call the police you got to do something he's like i don't have a phone i'll go get the car or the truck and i'll take you into town so we can call so there's just like this moment where he leaves her and the door to the gas station is open and it's like super quiet and she her eyes are darting around the gas station she sees like fucking meat cooking on the stove and you are just waiting because it's so fucking quiet and the door's wide open. I was, I don't know. I was just waiting for Leatherface just to a fucking appear in the door. He never does. This is one little moment I got to say real fast, Trey, that I just picked up on the first time watching this. But I feel like this, this moment of waiting was very intentional because earlier in the film, when Pam is reading horoscopes, Jerry says, hey, read Sally's. And... Pam reads off something that basically says like, there's going to be times where you are going to be so uh, shocked by everything going on. You're not even going to go know that it's real. Uh, so stop and pinch yourself and you're, you'll realize that maybe it is. And I feel like this is the moment here where Sally stops and, and pinches herself, meaning like she literally stops and she, there's a calm for a second where she kind of gathers herself and she realizes, I think she realizes the gravity of exactly what the fuck is going on, which is why in a moment here, she does stand up to defend herself. If you notice. Yeah. Yeah. The first, the, the first and only time in the film that she does so because the truck backs up to the, to the door, the old man gets out and he comes in very kind of just mopey dopey with, he's carrying a gunny sack and a rope and he's just smiling at her. And she's like, what are you going to do? And this is when she realizes this, this dude is obviously not a, friend he is he's part of this whole thing so she grabs a a knife and is like holding it towards him and he's like oh and he grabs a broom and is able to knock the 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 knife out of her hand and starts like beating her with the broom (laughs) i mean it's not a funny scene but in a sense it is you just see this old man like gleefully knock poor sally down to the ground and is like laughing hysterically as he's beating her with this broom and he finally gets her unconscious enough to put her in the sack and get her out into the into his pickup truck in the front seat, and he's just starts driving away with her. And you're right. So if you mentioned this way early in the episode, where he you he acts like he's such this like righteous character, right here in a few minutes around the dinner table. But all the entire ride as he's driving with Sally, he's punching her, he's prodding her really hard with the with the broom handle, and just getting a kick out of it. Yeah, he is so creepy. And actually, I think that there is something weirdly funny about the scene, which is really um, uh, kind of repellent, alarming. It's This is the first time that anything akin to humor has made its way into this movie. And there's something about it that I just find so unsettling um, in a great way. I love this character because he brings that. It's just he's gross. There's something gross about him. 
Yeah. Well, and then along the way, we realize real quick where he's driving. He's driving to the house because we see it come. Uh, we see it in the distance in the headlights. And also, what do we see in the distance is the hitchhiker from earlier in the film is also walking up towards the house. And right away, uh, the old man stops, gets out, and we we are fully aware now that these two are connected because he starts yelling at the I told you to stay out of that cemetery. You're going to get caught. And he's like hitting him and stuff. And gets back into the car or gets back into his truck. The hitchhiker hops in the back of the pickup truck and they proceed to go to the house. And he uh, tells the hitchhiker to get Sally out of the truck, take her inside. We realize it's the same house where all of this stuff has, has happened. Sally's dragged into the house. Of course, the old man is not happy that Leatherface has chainsawed the front door down. So he immediately is like, starts hitting him and chastising him for ruining the front door. And Leatherface is just responding in this like, how, what would you even call these noises? They're not like this child, like just whimpers, whimpers and moans. Yeah. It's really, really unsettling because now it's painting this hulking, you know, intimidating, scary as fuck character as just being like having the mentality of literally a, a toddler who's being scolded for not putting his toys away. And for everything that he has done thus far, the damage he's caused and the people he has murdered, uh, he is so intimidated and frightened by the old man. You know, he's so um, uh, he so like meek in front of him. But when in other scenarios, he's been just so aggressive towards other people. Uh, it's it's clearly it, it's clear that this uh, individual has a certain effect on him. Um, so yeah, it's just strange. It's, it's strange. The kind of, uh, chemistry this, these characters have with each other. It's so toxic in a way. And you had mentioned it earlier in, into the, uh, discussion, hope the overall, just like this, this family structure that they have, it's just so like abusive and they are their own downfall, you know? Yeah, I, I, I love and it's it's interesting because we've already lost so many of the characters that it's all of a sudden we've we've he's padded it again. We've got new characters and they're not new. I mean, we've seen them all, but now we've got another sort of group uh, to, to spend our time with. And that's one of the things that makes, I think, the sequels tough for this movie, because when you make a sequel to most sort of slashers, there's just the one villain and you can keep building new stories around the one villain. But what makes this movie so incredibly uh, powerfully creepy is this weird family dynamic. Um, and uh, and eventually it just feels like the viewer and Sally, we've just crashed this crazy household and they're really just mad at each other. Like she's just sort of a side character. Like she's of not much importance to them once they're all together. And that's so, it's just, it really sort of, pulls the rug out from under the viewer because she's the person we've sort of all been attached to this whole time. So all of a sudden it's like, we're not that important either because these guys have other stuff to deal with. And it's, it's a fascinating um, choice, I think as a filmmaker. Yeah. It carries through the rest of this. What is the finale too, is this whole sequence that inevitably builds up to the dinner scene. She's really just, you know, uh, a subject here uh, that is kind of being forced to watch uh, to experience the chaos amongst this family. And she doesn't really have any input or anything. They do give her sausage, though. <laughs> like. but, but, you know, she's, she's really just forced to be a bystander to all of this. Um, and uh, the three of these individuals just have no idea how to 
how to coexist with each other whatsoever. Well, I do like the moment where um, the hitchhiker takes the sack off of her head and she recognizes him and she recognizes her. And there's just this, it just causes her to go to get even more hysterical when she realizes this is who it is. And they, yeah, they, they, they tire, he ties her to a chair at the dinner table and the, the old man tells the hitchhiker, go get grandpa from and bring him downstairs. So he obliges, he goes upstairs and he's like bringing grandpa down in his wheelchair and the, the, the old man has to come help him because obviously getting a full human in a wheelchair downstairs is probably not the most easy thing to do. So they literally get this old grandpa that looks like a corpse. Like I'm still troubled or still confused about how this all plays out with this grandpa character supposedly still being alive, but they get him to the dinner table. They wheel him in front of Sally, proceed to take her finger and slice it with a knife and let grandpa suck the blood out of her finger. And he is just slurping away and it is disgusting. He's like, it's such an unexpected, it's a, it's an unexpected turn when he becomes like interactive with these people. Like he's definitely alive. Like I really thought he was a body, but no, he has the ability to suckle upon her finger. And I gotta say, Marilyn Burns at this point, like that, what an exhausting performance. I feel so tired just watching her. Like I can't imagine how she felt after a full day of filming this nonsense because I, she's just shrieking. All she can do is scream close-up shots on her eyeballs. Just, I mean, like I, that throat had to be hoarse for months after, after she finished filming this. It is exhausting. I agree with you. That's exactly how I feel every time I see it. I just, I just feel like I need to take a nap on her behalf um, for all that she goes through. And what, you know, it's funny, the, the grandpa who is definitely the, weirdest looking of the like he's he's a conundrum that character i don't know if you ever saw uh harmony Crane's trash humpers they have the the guy who's always wearing this mask this old man mask and i've always wondered if it was patterned after because it looks just like grandpa it's not a horror movie but it is kind of horrific in its own way oh, uh, most of his films are for sure <laughs> um <laughs> But no, yeah, yeah. I, I was paying attention to that this time around. I, all I kept thinking about, because we know as filmmakers, you do nothing in one take. So I was like, oh my God, how did she keep this hysteria up for the multiple takes that it obviously had to have taken to film this entire scene over a course of, I would imagine, one or two days, if not more. But you got to give her props. I mean, she she was so devoted to this role. And it you, gosh, I couldn't even imagine. Well, in the Blueberry commentary, they... Um, they're all like Gunnar Hansen really did cut her or mm-hmm. she I don't know she really was cut and so that does that mean that 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 the grandpa really was sucking actual blood out of her finger I mean it was the 70s and all but still oh Ugh. my god David oh uh, oh uh, real oh my god yes. that's actually a real cut I think uh, I did don't she know, know it I, think, was I can't remember if she if she agreed for them to actually cut her I, I don't know yeah, I think in the Blu-ray commentary, what they're saying is that they were having a lot of trouble getting it to work with fake blood, and it was so hot, and they were so tired, and and he just did it. I don't think he did ask her. He just actually cut her, and she didn't even care because she wanted the scene to be over with, which I can give her that. I would have to. 
So that's when it finally worked with blood is when she actually got cut. Yeah, I've I've heard that it was an exhausting fucking set, and understandably so. I doubt that location had AC. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> no. So, so Sally wakes up when they're yeah, the whole family's around the table eating sausages. And she just is screaming hysterically. And there's just this extended moment where they're mocking her. Um, there's a close up on like the chandelier that's hanging above the table. And again, it's just it's a human flesh chandelier. It's so unnerving. Leatherface now has a new face on that has like rouge and eyeshadow. And he gets up and gets in her face and starts like playing with her hair. And I do like this scene because it, it, it actually Sally is pleading with actually the hitchhiker to stop this she's like you can stop this and he's like no i can't and she is like please please just don't let them kill me and it's you know you can tell the desperation in her voice and there's the countless close-ups of her eyes just darting back and forth watching what's taking place in front of her there's the moment where the hitchhiker keeps calling the the old man just a cook he's just a cook and the old man's like well you know you got to do what you're you're built to he's like i've just never been into i wanted to get into the killing so again very subtle to let us know that he is the one that is cooking the meat, quote unquote, which are the the bodies, the victims that this family is brutally killing. So he's just the cook and he tries to play it off as like, oh, I'm the I'm I'm the good one because I'm not a killer. It's a really creepy performance, too, again, from from uh, from Jim Cito right there where he's he's because he is he's getting like excited about the violence of so it. But then it'll just go, oh, I, I can't take no joy. And, you know, and it just goes really back and forth. He's such a creepy character. Well, it is, it is funny because he's like, you know what? I'm not going to, he, he, yeah, again, he thinks he's so righteous because they're just terrorizing her. And he finally is like, you know what? Just kill her because I'm not going to be part of this torturing business that's going on. And he gets up from the table and walks away. It's like, okay. But then they're, they get the idea or the hitchhiker gets the idea that they should let grandpa have his last hurrah and let Sally be his final victim. Because apparently the grandpa in his prime was one of the best killers ever. So we do get this scene again, another iconic scene where they get Sally out of the chair, hold her down and put her head in this uh, metal barrel, metal tub, give grandpa this little sledgehammer and repeatedly let him try to hit her in the head. And this man can't even hold probably a fork, let alone a hammer. And he just clumsily keeps dropping it. But there are a few really just like (laughs) moments that made me cringe where you see the hammer actually hit her. Uh, And there's one particular strike that he does put some force into and it breaks the skin on her head and you just see the wound start to bleed. And they're all just laughing and gleefully just enjoying this as this old corpse is trying to hammer this poor girl to death. Yeah, I think when they apply earlier about he was one of the best like um, cattle killers, right? They say like at the meat plant, he's the family member that used to be the one that used to hammer the the cattle before the gun came into play, which I do like that there's this full kind of connection again with all of the dialogue that you've heard earlier from the hitchhiker and so forth. Um, it all kind of interweaves and ties back together. But the this whole sequence is so like pathetic. It's so like um, limp-wristed, may, dare I say, as a gay man, <laughs> holding that hammer, like just watching him try to like bat at this girl's head and she's just like helpless. Um, but I love that like it's just a matter of she's finally able to just get free enough for a second to 
book the fuck out of there, hair flying around and everything. It's just a matter of them like kind of fucking up again, you know? Yeah, they, 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 they get distracted as they both try to reach down for the hammer because he hits her in the head with it and the hammer kind of bounces. And so they both reach out and that's the moment she just flails frantically and breaks away and again, runs straight out the goddamn. She doesn't even try to go for the door, which we know has been sawed open. So it should be like pretty easy just to go out the front door. She ain't even wasting time doing that. She darts right out the goddamn living room window out onto the lawn and so pathetic this she has been put through the ringer covered in blood cuts all over her the back of her blouse is ripped open she's helplessly you know pathetically limping down the driveway when all of a sudden the fucking hitchhiker comes chasing out after her followed by a leather face with his chainsaw in full revving mode and it is a very tense scene because you're like oh my god they're gonna catch up with her and there's this moment where the hitchhiker does catch up with her and starts slicing her back with the fucking razor and all of a sudden this fuck the semi comes out of nowhere and as he's slicing sally's back she's able to pull away just in the nick of time and the hitchhiker doesn't have time to get out of the path of the semi and is literally mowed down and crushed by this fucking semi such a such a satisfying moment to be honest after everything you've seen this girl go through like her running down that driveway after he has her signature move of jumping out another window. Uh, like she is in such horrible shape, but she's still trying to survive. And like you as the viewer, if they would have, if they would have killed her off, I think there, there would have been a palpable anger after watching this movie, just because of simply watching what she goes through as a victim. Like, it's horrible. And she's literally, she looks like Carrie by the end of it. She's covered head, head to toe in blood. Uh, and just seeing the way he's like gleefully slashing her back. Oh, I'm so happy that we get to see that body go under that damn semi. <laughs> it's so graphic. I do love the semi driver. Okay. The semi driver has to be one of my favorite secondary characters <laughs> of all time. I really get the impression though. Oh, I, and sure. I, and I'm not saying it's a negative at all. I really get the impression that it was like, they knew they had to do this scene and they didn't have anybody. And they just saw this like random real semi driver drive by and be like, Hey dude, Hey, you want to take an hour and come and be in this movie? Because this guy literally looks like he has no fucking idea what to do. What's going on. He's just wide eyed. He's like, what the fuck am I part of? What is this? It is so funny. He has no dialogue, but if you watch his face, I really get the impression that they just like pulled this guy off the street. And once he got into seeing what was being filmed, he's like, what the fuck am I doing? But he gets out of the semi and, and Sally runs to him. They both get in and there's this moment where like Leatherface is sawing at the driver's door of the semi. So they go out the passenger's door, not before the semi driver grabs a wrench and uh, there's this shot I find funny of this of Leatherface chasing both the semi driver, who's a burly man. I mean, he's trying to run. His man boobies are flapping in his shirt, and he's just trying to run as fast as he can. And he does do something smart. He finally turns around and launches the uh, wrench right at Leatherface's face, knocking him straight back to the ground. And the chainsaw lands on Leatherface's leg and saws into his leg. Um, and this whole final is just so frantic. There's so much going on. Sally's still running. In the meantime, another pickup truck drives by. She flags that down, is able to get in the back. Leatherface gets back up. The semi-driver still running as fast as he can down the one direction. Sally's in the back of the truck. Leatherface is pissed. He starts swirling around with the chainsaw. As the semi or as the pickup truck goes, Sally's in the in the back of it. There's the iconic 
last shot of this film, which is her. Yeah. Is she laughing hysterically? Is she crying? But you know, based on what she is doing, that she is not going to be right at all. And the final shot is Leatherface in the middle of this road, broad daylight, sun shining down on him, morning sun shining down on him, twirling frantically with the chainsaw. And then the screen just instantly goes black. And it's the end of the film. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting end because nothing is really resolved, right? We don't know what happened to Sally. We don't know what happened to Leatherface and, and the old man. Did they survive? What happened? I mean, we get the sequel, but I'm not a big fan of the sequel. So I pretend it doesn't exist. So I'm like, what? There's just no resolution. No resolution, which is a ballsy, masterful way to end the film, if I do say so myself. I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, had she not survived, that would have been so punishing to have to have put an audience through all that, um, that, you know, it, that the the movie would just not have the movie wouldn't have survived. I mean, people would have watched it once and that'd be the end of it. It's like, well, if you just want to punish yourself for 90 minutes, this is the one for you. But the fact that she might almost be worse off than she would be dead. I mean, I think that's really the the master stroke in this movie is is her just riding away nuts, just yeah, uh, hysterical. It's it's and and yeah, just covered in her own blood. I do still always worry about that truck driver because we also don't know what happens to him, and it doesn't seem like there are many safe places for him to run to. And but fingers crossed, he got okay. He's still running away. In my <laughs> mind. He's still to this very day. He's running. No, but I mean, if we're going to talk grand finales, I mean, if we're going to talk finales that have gone down in the annals of history, dare I say, um, the combination of the shot of him spinning with the chainsaw and her cackling maniacally as the sun comes up um, in that bathed in orange it just looks so manic. It, I mean, it it ends exactly on the kind of note a movie entitled The Texas Fucking Chainsaw Massacre should end on. Like, it's so brutal. It's a barrage to your senses. The audio of that chainsaw, her just screams, the visual of her. It's, it's just, it's again, it's exhausting, as it should be. Uh, but uh, this movie really builds and builds and builds to a wild batshit bonkers ending that I really love. I love the open-ended element. I feel like certain little things do feel tied up. When you do see the hitchhiker go under the vehicle, there is a feeling of satisfaction with that because this whole family is so awful. Seeing Leatherface get the chainsaw to the leg, knowing that he was injured in the process of it, uh, satisfying. Knowing that she's in that vehicle, you know at this point at least she is getting away from them. That alone is a sigh of relief. At least this movie does let you kind of breathe, but you're still gripping on to the very final frame. Totally, yeah, I totally agree. With there that. is a reason, like I said, I keep saying, there is a reason why this film is such a landmark film, not only in horror, the horror landscape, but I would say cinema landscape, period. Yeah. It, 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 there's no way you're going to watch this movie and not be at least affected by it or have your, uh, have your emotions manipulated by it, whether you be scared, grossed out, angry, whatever, like you're going to feel something watching this movie. And that's, it's, it, and the only thing that it's a shame when I hear about the, when I hear the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or when I think about it is the fact that more than any other horror franchise, it's probably, 
the first film is a fucking masterpiece. We can all admit that. But the franchise itself is probably the weakest of all of them. And it's a shame because they had such great material to work with. And instead, they it just the, the franchise goes in so many different, like awkward directions. And it's just none of it ever reaches anywhere near the brilliance of the first film. I think a lot of that is because the first film at its core really thrived off the simplicity of it all. And if you try to take this concept and go bigger with it, I don't necessarily think it works. You know, the first film is literally just a group of kids in a van in rural Texas who come across the wrong people who know how to wield a fucking chainsaw. And that's it. It's the bare bones, the bare meat and bones, if you will. Trying to take this concept and add more layers to it, uh, I think, is the, the series downfall, as we saw with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4, uh, <laughs> um, New Generation. Because that one was just uh, too much. There's too much going on. Like, keep it simple. Just give me Leatherface. Give me a chainsaw. Give me a strong, vile girl. And give me some great fucking kills. And we're good. Let's keep it at that. I also think part of the problem is that for the for the other films, the uh, for the other sort of, uh, you know, franchises, the killer is one person and is mobile. And can, whereas here, the killer is a group of people and they're not mobile. They're in a spot. And you're, it, it really um, defies logic that nobody is, that people keep stumbling into this spot where they get cooked and eaten, but nobody else is noticing that. It's a lot easier to accept that a, a, a murderer is coming into a new area or, you know, it's the same area, but the murderer is coming to you as opposed to you keep stumbling into the murderer. So I think that's one of the reasons why, the the subsequent films haven't really worked as well. He's like, so how how do strangers keep finding this family, but the police don't? Hope I knew having you on for this one was going to be the right call because that's very well put. Yeah, that's I mean a one off scenario of a group of people stumbling into the wrong environment is scary. Um, seeing it happen over and over and over each time, it loses a certain a level of impact. And Troy, we mentioned this when we co- when we covered uh, New Generation because you even said you're like, God, it looks like they live right on the cusp of town this time around. Like there's cars everywhere, people are driving by on motorcycles. Like the threat factor is gone. Whereas here in this movie, they feel so isolated. The chance of somebody stumbling upon them is slim to none. Uh, the only person I could see really coming across this area would be something along the lines of a semi passing through or a random pickup, you know? Uh, and it, so everything makes sense. In this movie, it all feels like it, it, it very, um, very strangely rooted in reality, give or take a few aspects, Grandpa. Uh, but, but other than that, it feels very, very raw, almost snuffy, if you will, at times, which really adds to the horror of it all. Well, I think I think we can all agree that this is a a masterpiece of horror cinema, one of the best, one of the best, and rightfully acknowledged just so. And I'm so happy that we had hope on to discuss it. Yes, I I re- really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, truly hope. Thank you, thank you. I know thank I know we you. run a little long, but we're thorough. <laughs> but we're thorough. But in closing, hope, please one more time for our lovely listeners. Remind them your social media, remind them the book, remind them your film that's coming out, and really hit it home so they start following you across the board, okay? Okay, glad to. Uh, so the book is called Roost, and uh, and it's a, a story of, of twin girls in rural Ohio, sort of during the height of the satanic panic. 
And you can get, you can buy it wherever you buy books. You could also get uh, an autographed copy from my website, which is madwolf.com, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F.com. Uh, and the film, Obstacle Corpse, it's going to, it'll hit, uh, um, it'll hit festivals in October. And you can follow us uh, on Facebook and Instagram at Obstacle Corpse Film or on Twitter at Obstacle Corpse X. And if you want to hear my podcast, which is also about horror movies, it's Fright Club Pod on Twitter. Let's go that good material you got, listeners. <laughs> Catch up. Catch up on it. Seriously. Truly. Because truly, I really had a wonderful time working with you, Hope. I'm very excited to check out your podcast uh, because I very much enjoy chatting you, with you on ours. So um, I'm excited to see what's to come from you. I know it's nothing but wonderful things. I'm very, very excited for you. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how excited I am about meat, about the film, uh, your film meat. So excited about that movie. <laughs> I mean, I like both meat, my movie and meat, the actual food substance. Much <laughs> like we just we just witnessed here in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> so, but thank you so much for saying thank so. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And I'll let the audience, Roger, know real quick because they always like to stick around and know what film we're covering next week. And I'm just going to make it real quick. It's my birthday weekend next week, listeners. So I'm a 9-11. 9-11 is my birthday. So I wanted to choose something a little bit pro- appropriate for that. So next week we are covering the classic downtown Julie Brown flick. Bloody birthday. <gasps> Bloody birthday. Featuring the birthday girl herself. Mm-hmm. There she is. I, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be wearing my backless blouse and everything to celebrate the occasion. Oh, God, I can't wait for that. From backless uh, backless halter to backless blouse. <laughs> You're a dark night of the podcast. But with that being said. I just met her, by the way. Oh, my gosh. I hate this. Yeah, uh, she was she was in town, oh. and she uh, here in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, and she was uh, with her film Earth Girls Are Easy, and um, my husband George, who's the wolf of Mad Wolf, he and I did the intro and QA with her, and she's absolutely adorable and super funny, as you would hope that she would be. She's also really really short. <laughs> So is Terry McMinn. So, hey, <laughs> oh, we love our little women. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And on that note, thank you so much, Hope, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We loved it. It was a great time. I'm sure the audience is going to eat this one up. Thank you so much. Thank you. And on that note, we will see you next week for Troy Escamilla's bloody birthday. Good night. <laughs> Good night.